W. Fitch Company presents Dick Powell as Private Detective Richard Rogue. In Rogue's Gallery. Rogue speaking. Well, tonight you're going to meet some charming people. and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe. silly sometimes. I can go along for a whole month and get by on nothing but meals at the automat and a dozen laughs a day. The funny ones usually pay just as well as the tough ones, but eventually somebody starts something that's about as funny as an open grave. And now here is your guide to these adventures of the mind. There is someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you this morning. O.C.R. Now, here is O.C.R. Rob. Hey, everyone. This is O.C.R. Rob welcoming you to another edition of Richard Diamond, Private Detective, and the Richard Diamond block of detective shows. This episode of Richard Diamond comes from August 9th, 1950. The episode is entitled The Edna Wolf Case and The Lives of Harry Lime starring Orson Welles. This is from March 7th, 1952. The episode is entitled Turnabout Foul Play and The Private Files of Rex Saunders from July 4th. Born on the 4th of July, 1951. The episode is entitled The Hidden Thoughts of the Female Mind or the Feminine Mind. Which I think men will never be able to figure out. (laughs) And uh, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe from May 28th, 1949. The episode is entitled The Ebony Link and Rogue's Gallery from November 8th. 1945. The episode is entitled Little Drops of Rain. So enjoy all these episodes. I'll see you all back here next week. God willing, the creeks don't rise. Wear your mask, social distancing, get your booster, get your vaccine if you haven't got it. Let's get back to normal. Do it.
makers of Rexall drug products and 10,000 independent Rexall family druggists bring you Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Rexall family druggist with a welcome from the 10,000 independent druggists who have made the word Rexall part of our own store names. We've done that because we recommend and sell the 2,000 or more drug products made with the Rexall drug company, like Bismarex, for example. This famous Rexall antacid often neutralizes excess acidity within one minute. What's more, the ingredients in Bismarex vary in the time it takes them to dissolve in the stomach, and that way, relief from acid indigestion is quick continuous and prolonged. Quality like that of Bismarex is what we family druggists are talking about when we tell you you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. Good health to all from Rexall. Now your Rexall family druggist brings you another exciting half hour with Richard Diamond, private detective, starring Dick Powell. Well, are you, Mr. Diamond? Oh, my goodness, yes. Come right in. My name is Wolf. Unofficially, so is mine. Sit down. Thank you. Oh, no, no, my pleasure. You must get a dividend from the Nylon companies. You tell if there was a shortage. I'm well stocked. Yeah. What can I do for you? Start by calling me Edna. Then what? I'd like you to follow my husband. As a detective or a replacement? I think he's been seeing another woman. Why? Have you been running around the house in a diving suit and swim fins? I've always tried to keep myself attractive for my husband, Mr. Diamond. Well, then if your husband is seeing another woman, Mrs. Wolf, it's got to be an optometrist assistant. Well, thank you. I think you and I are going to get along just fine. Well, now that we're all agreed, tell me some more about your husband. What makes you think there's another woman? Usual things. The way he's been acting. Business appointments every evening. Nothing else? He received a call late this afternoon. I listened in on the extension. It was a woman. She called the house? George was very unhappy about it. Warned her never to do it again. She gave a name? She said, this is Nancy. I must see you here tonight at 8 o'clock. She didn't say where here was, did she? No, George seemed to understand. Probably her apartment. Probably. If he's seeing another woman, I want a divorce, Mr. Diamond. And you need grounds. Yes. A hundred a day in expenses, Mrs. Wolf. Edna. It's still a hundred a day in expenses. Here's two hundred. I hope that's enough of a retainer. Oh, that'll keep me interested for quite a while. Now, uh, tell me, what does your husband do? I I mean his business. He's in steel. How much in? Very much. He's vice president of his company. What does he look like? Here's a picture of him. Hmm. Well, I'll start right away and see what I can find out for you, Mrs. Edna. Yeah. Well, look, after I found out just how unfair your husband's treating you, I might lend you my shoulder to cry on. And I'd just about have to call you Edna then, wouldn't I? By seven o'clock, I was standing across the street from her house waiting for her wandering husband. 
By 7.30, a man stepped out on the sidewalk and hailed a cab. I recognized him from the photograph as George Wolfe, and I started the tale, following him east across town to an apartment house on 47th Street. By the time I got in the lobby, it was deserted. A list of names on the mailboxes showed the only girl named Nancy in the building was a Nancy Fowler. So I headed for her apartment. Her door was at the far end of the hall, and I was halfway to it when George Wolfe bounded out and ran right into me. Let me go. Take your hands off of me. You forgot to close the door. Get out of my way. What's the matter, friend? You look like you ran into a yard full of snakes. Will you get out of my way or must I use force? Well, use all you like, but I think you better go back and close the door. No, no. Yes, yes. Stop it. You can't do this to me. Well, I hope you aren't always this wrong. No, no. Please. Now get in the room. Oh, swell. No wonder you took off like that. I didn't kill her. I swear I didn't kill her. Nancy Fowler? Uh, yes, I guess so. You guess so? Well, this is Miss Fowler's apartment, but... I've never seen Nancy Fowler before in my life. There was the thirty-eight revolver lying next to the dead girl, so I took out my own gun and covered Wolf while I called Lieutenant Levinson of Homicide to get right over. Wolf yelled, screamed, and pleaded, and even offered me a nice fat bribe. But we waited for Fatty Levinson and his squad of New York's finest. He finally arrived, but New York's finest was poorly represented. Hello, Shamus. In trouble again, huh? Walt, did you have to bring Otis? I promised he hasn't used the siren in four days. Who's this guy? George Wolfe. Caught him running out of the door. Well, Mr. Wolf, what about it? I had nothing to do with it, but I'm not saying any more until I see my lawyer. He was crying all over the place before you got here, Walt. Claimed he got a call from a Nancy Fowler who asked him to come up here. That's the truth, Lieutenant. She said she had something important to tell me. Says he never even heard of Nancy Fowler before the call. That also is the truth. When I came to the apartment, I found her lying just as you see her. How'd you get in the door? She told me she'd leave it open for me to walk right in. Well, it came out the back, just below the shoulder blades, Lieutenant. You on the gun, Mr. Wolf? I refuse to answer any more questions. Okay, take him down to the car, Otis. Come on, you. Rick, just how did you happen to be in this building at this particular time? Well, I was hired by that guy's wife to tail him. He was supposed to be playing illegal footsies with a female named Nancy. The dead girl? Well, the wife just knew the first name was Nancy. The girl who's supposed to live here is named Nancy. Nancy Fowler. I've never seen her before. Maybe the dead girl is one and the same. Well, I'll get an identification and have the gun checked by ballistics. In the meantime, I'm going to give this apartment a good going over. Mind if I help? Now, what kind of an answer do you expect to that? You will anyway. He was so right. We started going over the apartment room by room. Closets, drawers, everything. In ten minutes, the coroner and the boys from the lab arrived. And in the bedroom, Walt found something. Take a look at this. Ah, jewelry box. Hey. Pretty expensive. Regal Jewelers. Very classy establishment. Has a card in the box. For my darling love, George. <laughs> and the guy said he never saw her before. If this is his handwriting, he's as good as strapped in the chair. Well, it looked as if my client, Mrs. Wolf, had a killer for a husband. But a couple of small items still worried me. So I left Walt and went downstairs to find the switchboard operator. Oh, are you with the police? I just left them, uh, Tell me, dear, do you keep a list of the calls that are made through the switchboard? Sure, it costs the tenants ten cents a call. May I see the list? Yeah, I guess so. Here, handsome. Gee, nobody's called me that since I had long blonde curls and a gold yo-yo. I looked over the list of telephone calls and found the ones made by Nancy Fowler during the past three or four days. The last call listed from her apartment had been made at 7.45 that evening to a familiar telephone number. The same number Mrs. Wolfe had given me when she left my office earlier. I left for the home of Mrs. Edna Wolfe. Yes? Oh, 
Mr. Diamond, you shouldn't come here. What if my husband... Your husband's spending the night out. What? In a cell, all alone. Oh, you'd better come in. Now, what in the world are you talking about? Well, it looks as if your husband killed a girl this evening. Oh, no. That's the way it looks. Oh, please, sit down, Mr. Diamond. Thanks. I uh, caught him running out of the girl's apartment, forced him back, and found the girl shot to death on the floor. Nancy Fowler? Yes, I think so. It was her apartment. The police are making identification now. Oh, it's just terrible. I wonder why he did it. Were you here in the house at 7.30 this evening? What? No, I was with a friend until about 8.30. Well, a call was made to your house from Nancy Fowler's apartment. She was charged for it, so the call was completed. But she probably talked to George. Your husband swears he didn't know the girl. Claims he got a phone call and she asked him to come right over. That she had something to tell him. He knew her all right. You remember, I told you I overheard them talking. Your uh, husband own a gun? Well, yes, I believe so. Hmm. You know what caliber? No. I don't know anything about guns. Uh, a bracelet was found in the dead girl's apartment. The card with it was signed, Love, George. Oh, it looks pretty bad, doesn't it? If it's his handwriting, it does. Well, I guess he deserves it, but I'll call our lawyer and see what can be done. I'll uh, keep in touch, Mrs. Wolf. I hope you will. Just because the case is finished. Well, there are still a few things that bother me, so I'll just kind of keep looking around until I'm satisfied. You mean you think maybe my husband didn't kill the girl? There's an awful lot of evidence that he did, but uh, there's still a motive to be found. You've got the grounds you wanted, so from here on in, anything I do for you or your husband will be on my own time. Anything you do for my husband, I'll be glad to pay for. Oh, well, now, that's, uh, that's real nice. Hmm. Well, I'll take a run down to the precinct and let you know what the lieutenant has found out. Good night, Mrs. Wolf. Still can't get used to Edna? It'll take a while. Thought you'd be in bed by now, Rick. My landlord short-sheeted me. What did you find out, Walt? The dead girl was Nancy Fowler. Mm, figured. And George Wolf did do the killing. His gun? Yeah, we checked the registration. His gun, his fingerprints on it, his handwriting on the note in the jewelry case. What does he say about the bracelet and the note? He bought it all right. We checked. Regal Jewelers. Says it was for his wife. You expect him to say something different? No. What's the motive? We'll find it. Probably another man. Here's the report on the dead girl, Lieutenant. Well, isn't it a little late for you, Otis? Why aren't you out flying around some belfry? He's picking on me again, Lieutenant. Maybe you'd like me to tell him about the time I caught you sleeping in the attic hanging by your toes. Oh, not you too, Lieutenant. Otis, I hear you've been picking up some extra money posing for Charles Adams. I don't have to take this. I know my rights, and I ain't no bad. Here's something on the dead girl. She works at the Gilded Cage, a nightclub owned by Eddie Young. Eddie Young. Wow. There's a nice little fella. He'd set fire to his grandmother if he thought it was too cold in the room. We'll have a talk with him tomorrow. Well, I guess I, I better be going. Sure. See you later. Yeah, I could sure use some sleep. Yeah. And, uh, Rick, when you get over to Eddie Young's club, give him my best. Smarty. The gilded cage where Eddie Young ruled as proprietor and keeper for his flock of hard gorillas was only about six blocks away, so I decided to walk it. But like always, I start in one direction and end up getting sidetracked. Keep walking, Diamond. Don't mm. turn around. Ah, uh, you caught me when I'm right in the mood. You turn around, I shoot you. What's the matter? Don't you want me to spot your Tony? Over to that car. Okay. Quit poking. Your muzzle's cold. 
You drive. I'll get in the back. Oh, I, uh, I forgot my glasses. Can't see three feet without them. Get in. But I have a restricted driver's license. You want it right here? I can wait. Where to? Just start driving and don't turn around. We headed east across town with a gun pointed at my neck. I tried to get a look at the guy in the rear vision mirror, but he was sitting too far to one side. I didn't know where we were headed, but I had a pretty good hunch why we were going there. Turn right. And take it a little slower. I don't want to have to shoot a cop. Well, if we're headed for the river, I've seen it. From the bottom? Don't you think we'd better stop at a bathhouse or something? I know a spot where you can go in, clothes and all. Okay. But if there's anything I hate, it's getting my money wet. Turn right again. We were headed for a cross street. I could only turn right or left. A big warehouse was dead ahead. I eased down on the gas and we picked up speed as we neared the intersection. As I started to make the turn, I stamped down on the gas hard and at the same time threw myself toward the floorboard. His gun went off so close to my ear, I felt like my head had split wide open. Then we hit the building. Listening to Richard Diamond, Private Detective, brought to you by the makers of Rexall drug products and your Rexall family druggist. And here he is. Last week, a customer said to me... I wish I knew some way to be sure I'm getting enough vitamins. Some way that's easy. Yes, and inexpensive, too. Well, ma'am, millions of people have found the easy way to do that. They take Rexall plenamins. Plenamins? Rexall's popular multivitamin capsules. Just two plenamins a day give you more than your minimum daily requirement of every vitamin for which such requirements have been established. Well, you can't expect much more than that. Yet plenamins do give you more than that, for they also contain valuable liver concentrate and iron, plus other factors of the vitamin B complex. Say, they sound expensive. On the contrary. Rexall plenamins cost you only a few pennies per day. Ask for plenamins at Rexall drugstores everywhere, and remember, you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. And now back to tonight's adventure with Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. We had hit the building and pushed our way halfway through the brick wall. I was still on the floor and the motor had been shoved through the firewall and was jammed into the front seat where I had been sitting a minute before. My friend with a gun was stretched out over the top of the seat, his legs resting on the horn and his shoulders through the windshield. I sat up, rolled him off the horn. He was very dead. Before a crowd could collect, I climbed out and got to a phone, called Walt. Are you sure you're all right, Rick? Yeah, I can hear things better now. I just said the other guy's dead. Very, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I recognized him, too. Gus Winkler. Holy cow. You know who he's working for now? No. Eddie Young. Oh, that's it. Well, don't pick Young up, Walt. I... I know a few things I haven't told you about, and this almost puts a cinch on it. I, I I want to talk to Young, and then I'll be down to see you. But if Young tried to have you killed... Oh, if he did, you can't prove it. Not yet, anyway, so sit tight. and When I get there, I'll show you how to catch a killer. 
Uh, you were going someplace, chump? Yeah, right through that door, chump. Uh, that's Mr. Young's office. Maybe he don't want to see you. Uh, maybe he don't, but he's going to be disappointed. Uh, uh, you, you ain't going in there, chump. I see. Everybody gets disappointed sooner or later, chump. Yeah, what... Aren't you in the wrong room? That's what your boy outside thought. I changed his mind. Are you sure you ain't looking for Bellevue, Shamus? You're kind of a mess. One of your boys, Gus Winkler, tried to give me swimming lessons. He can claim his body at the morgue. I don't know what you're talking about. Somebody else who works for you got killed tonight, too. Yeah, who? Nancy Fowler. What? Oh, come on, Eddie. I couldn't stand it if you started crying. Who killed her? The police are holding a man named George Wolf. Know him? No, I don't know him, but Nancy's talked about him a couple of times. Hey, boss, that guy just... Forget it, Lou. Well, but boss, he... Forget him... it, will you? Go on, beat it. Okay. You know, Shamus Lou's a pretty big boy for you to go pushing around. He's liable to stay mad. So Nancy said she knew this George Wolf. That's right. Rich old guy, from the way she talked, she was taking him good. Where were you between 7 and 8 this evening? Right here in this office. I got witnesses. Oh, I'll bet you have. Okay, Eddie, I'll see you around. I left the office knowing how close I was to the whole answer and called Walt at the precinct. I told him to meet me up the block from the gilded cage, and ten minutes later, he pulled the squad car up the curb, and I climbed in. You find out anything? Yeah, but I have to know one thing first. What time was Nancy Fowler killed? Garner's report puts it at 7.30. Well, that ties it. Now, would you mind telling me what it's all about? I'll do better than that, Walt. I'll show you. But we've got to wait until Eddie Young leaves the cafe and goes home. It was around 12.30 and we settled back to wait. And with an impatient cop sitting next to me, it wasn't easy. Around one in the morning, a boy brought Eddie Young's convertible up in front. We watched Eddie climb in. Okay, Walt, tell him. Stayed close, following Eddie Young across town until he pulled up in front of his apartment and turned into the basement garage. Give me five minutes, Walt. Then come on up to Young's apartment. Why can't I go now? Because what I'm about to do isn't quite legal, and I couldn't stand seeing you blush. up to your apartment. But please believe me, Eddie. I'll do something bad if you get out of line. We rode the elevator up to Eddie's eighth floor apartment. I shoved him in the door ahead of me and then made sure there was no one else around to give me any trouble. All right, all right. What do you want? Pick up that phone. Okay, we'll take it easy. Well, who do you want me to call? This number and hurry. I'll tell you what to say. Okay, well, I don't get this. Evergreen Street. What's the matter? Don't you like that number, Eddie? I don't even know the number. Well, then dial it quick. Okay. And when you get an answer, just say, this is Eddie. Get right over here. I got to see you. And I'll look, Shamus. You look, Eddie. I'm going to hold this barrel right between your eyes so you can see it coming if you make a mistake. I won't make a mistake. Hello. This is Eddie. Yeah, get right over here. I got to see you. I, I can't talk. Goodbye. 
Okay, now, will you take that gun away? You look a little worried. What have I got to be worried about? I, I don't know who I was talking to. Oh. That should be the law, Eddie. What is this, Diamond? I'm sorry, I can't show you right now. Good night, Eddie. Wait a minute, you... Come on in, Walt. You said five minutes. Holy smoke, what happened to him? I just put him to sleep. We'll stay that way for a while. Now, Rick, you've got to tell me what's going on. I told you I'd show you. Now, go on in the kitchen and see if you can find some ketchup. Ketchup? Yeah, then bring it out here and pour it all over Young. Have you lost your mind? Walt, I want him to make, I want him, to make him look like he's bleeding. Now, go find the ketchup or I'll just have to cut his throat. Walt found the ketchup and under protest poured it over the unconscious Eddie Young. Then I made sure the door was unlocked and we went out in the hall to wait. Please, Rick, what is this? It's the same way Nancy Fowler killing was framed, only she was really killed. Right, elevator. Okay. I'll play along with it. Let's go, Walt. All right, hold it, Miss Wolf. Oh, Mr. Diamond, he's dead, he's dead, his head, he's all covered with blood. Why did you kill him? Kill him. I didn't kill him. I just got here. Who let you in? He told me the door would be open. I didn't know you knew Eddie Young. Well, I, well, yes, I know him. He's an old friend. Why? This is Lieutenant Levinson, Mrs. Wolf. He's the man who arrested your husband for the murder of Nancy Fowler. <sighs> Lieutenant, I swear I didn't kill Eddie. Looks bad, Mrs. Wolf. I didn't. Why would I want to kill Eddie? Well, why would your husband want to kill Nancy Fowler? I don't know. What has that got to do with this? You told me you didn't know Nancy Fowler. I didn't. You know Eddie. Nancy worked for Eddie. Well, I didn't know it. I didn't know Eddie that well. You said a girl called your husband and said her name was Nancy. Yes, that's right. You told me you didn't know her last name, and yet when I came over and told you your husband had just killed a girl, you asked me if it was Nancy Fowler. That's a lie. You said that Nancy phoned your husband that afternoon. She did. She did. I swear she did. And yet Nancy Fowler's hotel switchboard has no record of a call being made to your phone any time in the afternoon. They made a mistake. But at 7.45, a call was made from Nancy's apartment to your phone number. Then she must have called my husband again. According to the coroner's report, Nancy Fowler was dead at 7.30. Oh, Mrs. Wolf, I can swear your husband didn't go into that building until 8 o'clock. I was following him. Uh, I guess it doesn't make any difference what Eddie did. Did Eddie kill the girl? Yes. I called my husband. I wanted to get a divorce. And his money at the same time. Eddie knew Nancy, so we decided she'd be the one. She let Eddie in. He made her call my husband. Then he shot her. The gun and the bracelet. You just took them out of your husband's dresser drawer and planted them in Nancy's apartment? Yes. I found the bracelet in the drawer with the gun. I guess my husband was going to surprise me. Uh, Eddie. Eddie is moving. Oh, Eddie. Eddie, darling. What happened? You're hurt. You're bleeding. Please. Stay still until we can call it. Wait a minute, will you? Hey, what is this stuff in here? This isn't blood. I'm covered with ketchup. Ketchup? Ketchup? Why, you dirty, no good! Uh, uh, uh. Eddie, we've been framed! Framed? They're all yours, Walt. Why? Good night, Mrs. Oh, I guess now is as good a time as any. Good night, Edmund.
Yes. Helen? Hmm? It's Rick, honey. Oh, isn't that sweet? I was just dreaming. Rick, it's four in the morning. Where are you? Oh, I'm helping Walt close up the gilded cage. Helping Walt close up the what? The gilded cage. Nightclub. I hear music. Hmm. Button is accordion. We'll love you. Are you drinking? Honey, I'm with the police force. <laughs> what was that? Well, that was Walt. He said, Rick. You stood me up this evening. Well, I'm going to make up for it, honey. Listen. Okay, eh? One, two... You made me love you I didn't want to do it I didn't want to do it You made me want you And all the time you knew it I guess you always knew it You made me happy sometimes You made me glad But there were times, dear You made me feel so bad You made me sigh for I didn't want to tell you I didn't want to tell you I want some love, that's true Gimme, gimme what I cry for You know you got the kind of kisses That I'd die for You know you made me love you Abe? Abe? That's enough, Abe. How was that, honey? Honey? Honey. Oh, well. She like it. Well, of course she did. She'll be dreaming about it for the rest of the night. Come on, Walt. Let's dance. Once more, here's your Rexall family druggist. No faster acting aspirin made. That's Rexall aspirin. When taken with water, the five full grains of pure aspirin contained in every Rexall tablet are ready to go to work for you even before they reach your stomach. Next time you need aspirin, remember Rexall aspirin. There's no faster-acting aspirin made. Ask for it at Rexall drugstores everywhere. And remember, you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. Good health to all from Rexall. Richard Diamond, Private Detective, stars Dick Powell in the title role and is written by Blake Edwards, with music composed and conducted by Frank Worth. Featured in tonight's cast were Virginia Gregg, Ted DeCorsia, Wilms Herbert, Hi Aberback, Stacey Harris, and Victor Perrin. Richard Diamond, Private Detective, is produced and directed by Jaime Del Valle. This 
This is Bill Foreman inviting you to be with us next Wednesday at this time when we will again bring you Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Hiya, beautiful. Get lost, Bristlepuss. You need a shave. But I have shaved. What else do you want me to do? Silly boy, she wants you to go stag. Go stag? But why? Because stag is Rexall's exclusive line of men's good grooming aids, like stag brushless shave cream. No fuss, no massage, just smooth it on and presto, you get a clean, close shave. Your face stays smooth and whiskerless all day long. I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll go stag. That's it. Join the stag line now at Rexall drugstores everywhere. Yes, to make girls care. Go stag. Sarah Berner will delight you tomorrow with Sarah's Private Caper on NBC. Orson Welles as the third man. The Lives of Harry Lyme, the fabulous stories of the immortal character originally created in the motion picture The Third Man, with zither music by Anton Carroll. In my youth, after a serious study of all the good causes that can lay just claim to a man's attention, I decided to work for the best cause of all, the cause of Harry Lyme. But though I subsequently spent my life performing pecuniary sleight-of-hand tricks, it cannot be said of me that I dealt in unattractive merchandise. Whenever I sold a gold brick, it was a highly polished article indeed. Perhaps you'd like to hear about one such commercial venture. said had come for a half year's rest to make them fit for a half year of weekending. I was with these people, but not by any means of them, for I'm well known to be a man of sober and industrious habits who never stops working for a minute, especially in places where the wealthy have congregated with loosened purse strings. The man I was doing business with was Hans Kropt, a German industrialist. 
Herr Krupp didn't know that I was doing business with him. Herr Krupp never saw me, as a matter of fact. I used to sit on the veranda of the hotel, just at the point where it made a turn, and around the turn, Herr Krupp would sit, talking to a, well, let's call him a partner of mine, Kurt Mannheim. I listened, and with interest always, for I am never bored by my work. I am disappointed in you, Herr Mannheim. Oh, why should that be, Herr Krupp? You have told me that you know all the people who come here. Oh. You have told me that you would be able soon to find some solid commercial opportunity for a man of my genius. But the themes you have come up with... Ah. I have nearly been filling in the time until something really interesting comes along, Herr Krupp. It will never come along. But it has come along, Herr Krupp. It has? Today. What is it? It would take... Uh, a great deal of capital. I am Hans Krupp. There's no lack of capital. Very well. Bill Foster registered here today. So? Bill Foster is an English representative of the United Nations. So? He's in charge of United Nations plans for the industrialization of Western Europe. That is interesting. I thought it might be a cop. If I could get to a man like that... If you could get to a man like that, if you could learn what plans the United Nations has, you could build a fortune greater than the one you had before the war, buying the right property, going into the right business and the right place... You do not have to teach me the alphabet of commerce. This uh, Foster, is he corruptible? He's already corruptible. Can I trust him? If you pay him. There will be no difficulty then. Except... That he will not trust you. What do you mean? He is cautious. He deals with people he knows. No, do you know him? Not uh, that well. Then your information is absolutely useless. Not quite. I know someone who does know him. Who? Harry Lyme. And who is Harry Lyme? Surely you have seen him around this hotel. Uh, tall, distinguished. And Foster would do business with this Harry Lyme? Without hesitation, without question. And how can I be sure that Harry Lyme will not cheat me? You can be sure of that. What you cannot be sure of, Herr Kopp, is that he will help you at all. Why not? For the same reason that he will not cheat you. You have strange and disgusting acquaintances, Herr Mannheim. Harry Lyme is incorruptible. Incorruptible? <laughs> this incorruptible person is the only man in Bern who could act as a go-between with Foster? That is correct. Very well. We shall try to corrupt Harry Lyme. So, Herr Krops was going to try to corrupt me. Being a highly moral man, I've always delighted in biting biters, sinning against sinners, and fleecing crooks. So, I looked forward to meeting Herr Krops with a pleasure I was wise enough to conceal when the next day I allowed Kurz and Herr Krops to run into me in the lobby. Mr. Lyme, Mr. Lyme, how are you, Mr. Lyme? Herr Mannheim, isn't it? Uh, Yes, and I would like to present Herr Krops. How do you do, Mr. Lyme? How do you do? Hans Kropt. You have heard of him, surely. Oh, yes, I've heard of you, Herr Kropt. I've heard an account of your trial. <laughs> Sorry, your friend had to die. My friend? Uh, yes, chap named uh, Adolf Hitler. Oh, you are too harsh, Mr. Lyme. I did only what any patriotic businessman under Hitler would have done. That's probably true. I've many times noticed that patriotism blunts the sense of smell. Uh, uh, Mr. Lyme, uh, perhaps you and Herr Kropp could find some ground for oh, me to let in. 
We try. Perhaps we can find something. But uh, do we have to try? Well, uh, I was just suggesting... You were just suggesting that since Haircroft and I are guests in the same hotel, we can at least be civil to each other, is that it? Oh, I'm sure that this hotel men I men. Well, that's the way it'll be. We can be civil to each other, Haircroft. We can smile, we can bow, but at a distance, please, because my flesh is sensitive to knives in the hands of those who slap me on the back. Now, Haircroft was sure that I was the incorruptible public official that my friend Kurt Mannheim had represented me to be. And if I continued to let him think so, it's only because as a point of honor I never tell the truth to liars. Later the same day, I listened once more from my station just at the turn of the veranda to a conversation between Kurt and Croft. This man, Lyme, is going to be difficult. I told you how it would be. There is no other way to get that Foster? No other way that I know of. What are Lyme's weaknesses? He has none. Gambling? Huh? Lyme? Does he drink? He holds it when he does. Does he like books or plays, uh, operas, symphonies? Does he have a secret vice? Is there anything at all in his background that Herr you can... Kropp, let me assure you, I know the techniques of breaking down a man. I have investigated carefully. I have found nothing. You say he is a bachelor? Yes. Doesn't he get lonely? Who knows? Now, a woman oh, could possibly Difficult, be... difficult. Why is This that? man likes ultra-respectable women. Then an ultra-respectable woman could... An ultra-respectable woman who will do your bidding? Hmm. It is difficult. I wonder... Yes? I wonder if Mr. Lyon would like my daughter. Herr Krupp, you use your own daughter on a job like this. Oh, I would not let her know what I was about. I could not let her know. You know why? Why? Because she is like this man Lyon. Exactly like him. She is stuffy, she is proper, respectable, she is moral, she preaches. Oh, she does sound like Lyon. Yes, and if Lyon likes her, I may be able to get around him. <laughs> it will be a good joke on my daughter, eh, Kurt? <laughs> she hey, preaches at me all the time. Now she is going to help me. <laughs> Listening there on the veranda, I was appalled. I played my part all too well. Now I was to be wooed. Not in any of the ways I could have suggested myself to Aircroft. Not with money or entertainment. Or by having a lewd and lovely dancing girl smile seductively upon me. No, I was to be thrown into the company of an earnest, bookish, sniffing, do-gooder with glasses, most likely, and acne. A joyless drab who would in all probability avoid the use of the complexion aid she would so sorely need. And I would have to act up to this gargoyle. Well, business was business. Kurt informed me that I had two days reprieve for Frida, which was the preacher's name, would not arrive until Friday. I spent those two days in prayer, but by no means in fasting. And when Friday was all too soon upon us, I stationed myself in the lobby and waited to be accosted by Herr Cropped. Uh, Mr. Lyme! Oh, hello there, Cropped. Uh, when my friend Menheim introduced us the other day, Mr. Lyme, you were good enough to say that you felt we should be civil. Mm, yes, I did, at a distance. I understand. I am presuming on you now, Mr. Lyme, asking you to understand that I am not the bad fellow I am supposed to be. Asking you as a least to be pleasant to my daughter. She has oh. just come to stay here with me. I'd be very happy to be pleasant to your daughter. She is here. You would care to meet her? Certainly. Oh, Frida! Frida! Yes, Papa? Well, the girl who tripped toward us was not the girl I had been expecting. No glasses, no acne, no need of complexion aids. <laughs> 
She was young, and lithe, with corn blonde hair and rather serious blue eyes set in a face all peaches and cream. I'm afraid I staggered my way through the introductions. Perhaps you two young people would like to go into the patio or go for a hike? Is that what you call it? Uh, uh, Papa, are you not presuming? Mr. Lyme may have other uses for his time. Oh, no, no, not at all. I <clears throat> I should be honored if you'd uh, come with me into the patio, Fräulein uh, Kropp. Fine, fine. Patio. I have some business to attend to. I, I will see you at dinner, Frida. I must apologize for Papa. Oh, why? He so obviously threw me at you. Oh, no, I, I don't know what to think. I'm very embarrassed. If you're a sample of his throwing arm, he should be with the New York Yankees, aren't he? You're very gallant. I'm very much smitten. I do not ordinarily approve of my father's friend. I'm fine, because I'm not a friend of his. The fact is, I don't approve of your father very much. I don't blame you. But uh, we shouldn't let such things make any difference to us, should we? Uh, the patio? By all means, Mr. Lyme. In a moment, Orson Welles returns as Harry Lyme, the third man. In today's story, Turnabout is foul play. Frida and I danced and skied and dined and walked together every day and every evening. My father beamed whenever I called it a suite for Frida, made no attempt to approach me. He wanted to be quite certain that I was hooked before he started to reel me in, and as far as I was concerned, I didn't mind waiting for him to come to the point. Not when I was constantly in such lovely company. It was Frida herself who finally brought things to a head. One night when we were sitting over coffee after dinner in the corner of the hotel lobby. Harry? Yeah? We hadn't spoken much about my father. Mm, no, we hadn't. I know you disapprove of him. Well, I'm sorry, but I do. It's all right. I do, too. And I think I can speak frankly to you. Well, let's hope you could, Frida. He's up to something. You mean the sort of thing he used to do before he went to prison? Yes, I'm sure of it. He's carrying 30,000 English pounds in a money belt. 30,000 yes. English pounds? I counted it when he was bathing yesterday. And Harry, I wouldn't bother you with this, but I think it has something to do with you. With me? How could that be? You're an official of the American oh, government, no. aren't you? No, of course not. Yes, you are. I heard my father talking to that Kurt Mannheim about you. I know it's supposed to be a secret, but I wanted to warn you. My father knows you're with the American government. Well... <laughs> Thank you, Frida. I, I don't know how he discovered my secret, he but... He discovers everything. He wants something from you. I feel so ashamed. 
I'm afraid he introduced us because he thought that you might... Well, but I... But you would like me. Well, if, if that's so, darling, I must tell you he was right. And how are the young people, right? Hello, Herr Croft. You both look so serious. Papa, sit down on it. Yeah? I've been telling Harry that you're up to something, well... Uh, Shall we say uh, unsavory, Herr Croft? <laughs> the things one has to bear from one's moral and suspicious children, Mr. Lyme. Oh. <laughs> Father will not let me forget the mistakes I made when I was younger. What she says is quite untrue, of course. Is it? Then why are you carrying 30,000 pounds in your money belt? You have been searching my clothes, sweetheart. I won't apologize. No, you will not apologize. You will only condemn. You haven't explained what you're doing with that much money. Well, uh, you know the international refugee group you are so interested in. Yes. The drive opens next week. I, I was going to try to bring joy to your heart by giving the money to them. I do not believe you. I have listened to enough, Freda. You may go to your room. No, no, that's the most ridiculous. Never uh, mind, Harry. I'm a dutiful daughter. I will go, Papa. Goodbye. She is a dutiful daughter, Mr. Lyme. In some ways. You brought her up in the old-fashioned way, I suppose. Exactly. And since I intend to marry her, I suppose I must let you know it before I let her know it. Seems silly, doesn't it? She would never marry without my saying that she could. Mm. I'm asking your permission, then. Mm-hmm. Mr. Lyme, do you know Bill Foster, a United Nations man staying here at the hotel? Yeah. I am anxious to meet him. Oh, well, that ought to be quite easy. I am anxious also to be recommended. Mr. Plain spoken, Haircroft. I know that Bill Foster has in his possession the UN plans for the industrialization of Western Europe. You want to bribe him, isn't that it? Well, do you have to put it that way, Mr. Lyman? I'm one of those efficient Americans you hear about, Haircroft. I like to save time. Very well, I wish to bribe him. Now, uh, about my daughter, Frida. It is too bad that she would never marry unless her papa said she might. Uh, now you're bribing me. Well, not at all, Mr. Lyman. <laughs> of course, I would want her to marry some person who was friendly. Oh, but... okay. You don't have to spell it out, Haircroft. Take your time, Mr. Lyman. I love your daughter very much. I want very much to marry her. So? Well, I'll get in touch with Bill Foster for you. Foster here. Bill, this is Harry Lyon. Everything's all set. Crops Britain? Hard. Got some impressive-looking plans made up? I've got them. Okay, I'll bring Crop around this afternoon. So long. Bye. was that. We were ready to take Crop's 30,000 pounds, and if I had any regret at all, it was that I wouldn't see Frieda again. Then I've always found in such cases that uh, other girls. Wherever you go, you find other girls take place the girls you don't dare to get in touch with again. The world is full of wonderful things, including the money that men like Crop are willing to pay for a few phony papers. So I brought Crop to Bill Foster's room that afternoon. It's a great pleasure, Mr. Foster. I've been wanting to meet you for a long time. Then we can get right down to business. Harry tells me your hair and isn't philanthropic. <laughs> Harry wouldn't tell you anything if it weren't for a rag and a bone and a hank of hair. He likes my daughter, Mr. Foster. Yes, he told me about that. Now, I understand you want access to the UN plans for the industrialization of Western Europe. A blunt man? I like that. I can let you have them for 48 hours. For a price. Aircraft has money. Yeah, yeah. How much? Shall we say 10,000 pounds? You can make millions with these plans. 15,000. Haircroft, you know how distasteful this is to me. I myself wouldn't touch a penny of your money. I have no respect for either one of you, but in 
the context of this crooked business, I find myself unhappily associated with you, and I cannot permit one of you to cheat the other. Oh, don't worry, Harry, old boy. I wouldn't take him up on an offer of 15,000. I'd want 20 at least. I will meet that price. 20,000. 30,000. 30, this is a 20. Isn't that good enough? Oh, 20,000 is good enough, all right, but you're carrying 30,000. That's even better. If you're carrying that much, that's the amount I want. Disgusting. I hope you know, Mr. Lyme, you have just cost me 10,000 pounds. Well, why don't you look at it this way, Croft? You haven't so much lost 10,000 as you have gained the sun. All right, all right. I shall want to take the plans and have my experts examine them before I pay any money at all. Is that so? I shall want the money before I let those plans out of my possession. Isn't Mr. Lyme's word good enough for you? Mr. Lyme must not guarantee that you will return the plans to me if you got them without paying for them. Now, tell him, Mr. Lyme. Well, tell him I, that... I, I can't tell him what I don't know, old man. You're, you're not particularly honest, Aircroft. You might take the plans. After all, you might copy them and return them to Foster, if you return them at all, and without payment. Yes. It would be like you. Even be good business, I suppose. But I must have my experts examine them. I, I must know what I am buying. Crop's point of view is reasonable, too, Foster, you know. Well, he won't get the plans till I get the money. Wait a minute. Uh, we both want this deal to go through. There must be a... Yes. We are both convinced of Mr. Lyme's honesty, are we not? I am. And I. Thank you, gentlemen. You give me the plans, and I give the money to Mr. Lyme to hold until my men uh, have examined them. Uh, no, no, no. I was willing to bring you two together, but I don't want to have anything to do with the money. It seems like a reasonable proposition to me, Harry. The money is tainted. Nobody is asking you to keep the money. Well, I should hope not. Well, we just want you should hold it. Well, I, I don't like oh, the idea. But that's at all. unreasonable, Harry. You're in it this far. Yes, I'm in it this far. Goodness knows. Here. Here's the money. Take it. great pleasure to stand there looking unhappy and reluctant and to have that great pig of a craft force the money on me. But I finally allowed his entreaties to prevail and stuffed the 30,000 pounds into my pocket. Foster then produced the completely spurious plans and blueprints and cropped up them and left. Now we had to act fast. Foster gathered up his luggage. He was all packed, of course. We went immediately to my room, where my luggage awaited us. There was always the danger that Crop might see us in the lobby, so he took the time to arrange two envelopes, one with the money in it and one containing strips of newspapers. The envelopes looked alike, so if by chance we should find it necessary to return the money to Crop, we could switch the envelopes on him. Now we were ready to go. But at that moment, there was a knock at the door. What's that? I don't know. I do would answer it. Harry! Oh, come in, Frida. Uh, th this is Mr. Foster. I, uh, I was uh, just about to bring him to the station, Frida. Harry and Mr. Foster, here are the plans my father got from you. I don't get this. I heard my father talking to some of his men on the telephone, telling them to get right over and examine these plans. I knew he couldn't have come by them honestly, so I took them. Well, uh, Foster, you'll be late for your train. You'd better go. I won't be able to help you now. Well... All right. Uh, here, uh, don't forget this bag. Oh, no, no, of course. You uh, uh, you, you know where I'm staying. Oh, yes, I know. Uh, all right. Uh, toodle And thanks for the plans, miss. We, we won't prosecute your father. Now, Harry, what about the money my father gave you to hold? Oh, uh, oh. Well, you know about that, too? Yes. <laughs> Frida, I swear it was for love of you. I, I never wanted to get mixed up in this. It's I know all that. Papa chuckled over that with Kurt Mannheim. I heard him. I listen all the time. Now, what about the money? The money, yes, yes. Um, you know, I think we ought to teach your father a lesson and not return this money to him. I'm glad you feel that way, because that was my thought, too. Oh, it is. 
It was? Yes. We'll use that money as he pretended he was going to use it. We'll give it to the refugee group. Harry, don't you think that's a wonderful idea? Uh, oh, yes, it's perfectly wonderful. She was looking at me and she had her hand out and I knew I had to give her the money. But the preparations I'd made to fool her father would be equally useful with her, I was sure. I took out the envelope containing the money, I handed it to her, had her count it and put it back in the envelope and seal it. Then I spoke casually about a picture on my wall when she looked toward it, I... Well, I did the old switcheroo with the envelopes. Both envelopes were now in my bureau, but the one with the money in it was under a magazine. I strolled casually into the bathroom, combed my hair, and when I came back, she picked up the envelope that was lying in plain sight, and we left for the offices of the refugee organization. This will teach Papa exactly the kind of lesson he needs. I was afraid that she would allow the officials of the refugee group to open the envelope in our presence. But she was just as willing as I was simply to leave it and go outside. So everything was okay. And now to get rid of her. Are you going back to the hotel, Harry? Um, no, I'll I'll have to leave you. I'll see you tonight, Frida. All right. But Harry, one moment. Kiss me. It's a pleasure. I kissed her. It was a pleasure. I was kissing her goodbye, so it was a lingering kiss. Then it seems she wanted to borrow my pen and some paper. She wrote something. Here, take this. Don't look at it unless you do not see me tonight. Do not ask me what I mean. If you do not see me tonight, read this. Otherwise... I took it. We parted. When I was able, I went back to the hotel, checked out and caught a night train. It wasn't until I was well on my way that I thought again of a note. I took it out and... Rather expecting to be amused, started to read it. But as I read, I grew more and more horrified. In my mind's ear, I could hear her voice reciting every syllable of that note. Harry, darling, I love you. But I have been the daughter of a criminal. I cannot be the wife of another criminal. Yes, I know that you are that. I even knew that you switched envelopes on me. And when you went into the washroom, I switched them back. Don't feel too sad about losing the money. The refugees need it. Love. Frida. Harry Lyme will be back in just a moment. beating. That was the worst moment in my life. But this was the second. 
However, one must be brave. One must take the bad with the good. <clears throat> I suppose it might have been worse. Suppose I was married to an honest girl like Frida. The very thought sends a shudder down my spine. So long now. Hey everyone, this is OTR Rob. I thought I'd come in here just a bit here to explain that I believe I've done half of the episodes of The Lives of Harry Lime. I believe it was only one season. It might be two, but I don't know. Don't quote me. But So I'm halfway through Orson Welles. And then The Private Files of Rex Saunders, which I'm presenting to you now... I believe that there's only two episodes after this one. And then he's going to go away and I'll have to find something else to replace Rex Saunders. I'll find something. I'll probably bring back something else that I have not done or that I was doing and dropped. That's probably what I'll do. I'll, I'll punch in something that I had dropped originally from last season, and bring that back into the fold to replace Rex Saunders. And Philip Marlowe's got a, a long ways to go. I think we got two more years on the adventures of Philip Marlowe. And Rogue's Gallery is definitely one season. And I just started to bring those. We're on the fourth episode now. So I think that's 
35 episodes remaining if we have all of the Rogues Gallery episodes. So I think we're in good shape there. But just thought I'd let you know what is going on right now and uh, what shows will be going away. I don't know what shows I'm going to replace the Gone shows with, but it doesn't matter. You all seem to like Detective, and there's plenty of them around, I'll tell you that. I think if I was to have a collection of radio shows, I would have every comedy show, and I would have every detective show. Not mystery, not necessarily mystery, but detective shows, because I like those the best, like you do. I'm a big fan of the detective shows. So, anyway, so enjoy this Private Files, or P.F., of Rex Saunders. Starring Rex Harrison. And, uh, I'll be back. Rex Harrison stars in another intriguing adventure transcribed from the private files of Rex Saunders. a masquerade. It's rather difficult to fathom the beauty hidden behind a lace mask. And it's even more difficult to fathom the hidden thoughts in a feminine mind concerned with murder. And now, the private files of Rex Saunders. RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, and first in television, brings you the celebrated star of stage and screen, Rex Harrison, in another exciting story taken from the private files of Rex Saunders, radio's newest man of mystery. We hope you enjoy these weekly stories of intrigue and adventure, and for another adventure in home entertainment, we suggest you try RCA Victor's fine line of radio and television products, now on display at your RCA Victor dealer. Now for our story. I stand here on the bar of the ship as we head for home, and a soft breeze ripples the moonlit waters of the Caribbean. I stand here and I think of the strange adventures which have just ended, and I think especially of her and the first time we met. It was our last night out before entering the port of Havana, and as I stood watching the quiet scene, the noisy gaiety of the masquerade ball floated up faintly from the dance floor. I turned from the breeze to light a cigarette, and I saw her glide out of the shadows onto the open boat deck. She was dressed as an Arabian princess, and the moonlight made her disguise quite believable. Oh, pardon me. Yes? Uh, may I, uh, may I have a light, please? Certainly, here. 
In fact, it's uh, much too nice a night for it. Too nice for what? Running away. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, you came over to me in quite a rush, and uh, it wasn't just for a match, now, was it? Well, of course it was. And where do you get the idea that... However, you don't have to worry. He's gone. Who's gone? The man who was following you. He went down the stairs to the deck below. No one was following me. You're mistaken. No? Then why did you come over to me? <laughs> Objection? No. Curiosity. At least you'll do me the favor of removing your mask. Sorry. Oh. Well, not even your name, I suppose. Not even my name. Well, then, Princess, I'll just have to give you one. Sherry Zardy will be appropriate. Why her? Well, she was a royal and beautiful liar. And now, I suppose, the storybooks would have it. You will leave me standing here and fade back into the shadows from which you came. No, the storybooks have it wrong. I'm leaving you. Only you're coming with me. And where are you taking me on your magic carpet? Down into the ship's hold to one of the storage compartments. What if I should refuse to go? You won't. Why not? This automatic. Down the passageway. Princess, this is going to teach me a lesson. Never trust the lady until you know her name and the serial number of her gun. Just keep walking. Do as I say and there won't be any trouble. All right, stop here. Now what? Here. Take this money. You're going into that storage room through this door. What do I do in there? There's someone inside waiting. You give him that money, he'll give you an envelope. You bring the envelope back to me. All right, now go inside. And remember, I'll be watching you from here with this gun. Go ahead. Stay where you are, senor. Huh? Don't turn around. There are two of us here. And I have a gun pointed at you. Oh. Now back, senor. Slowly move back this way. That is enough. Now remember, please do not try to turn around. I remember. Why did you come, senor? Believe me, the choice wasn't mine. I was standing on the boat deck minding my own business. I do not like this, senor. You express my feelings exactly. You have the money? I have the money. You hand it back to my friend here, senor. You hand it back and please do not turn around. All right, that's what you say. Here it is. I believe I was to get something in return. See, si, senor. In return, I do have something for you. you out on the boat deck. Luckily, one of the crews saw you go below with a young lady. Oh, the princess. The what? Uh, never mind, Alec. Go on. Well, I came in here and found you sprawled out cold. And he was lying over there. What are you talking about? The gentleman behind you, lying next to the crate there. Well, looks as if I had company during my blackout. Who is he? I don't know. I notice he has a roll of bills in his hand. Oh, then he must be one of the two I was dealing with. Now, I realize you're in a weakened condition, but would you mind giving me just a slight hint as to what went on down here? I haven't the faintest notion of what it's all about. Huh? 
But I'm going to see that we get a full explanation after we bring my companion there around. That'll be a little difficult. He's dead. A special group of people we know have enjoyed themselves immensely this holiday, whether they spent the fourth away or just around the house. We mean those folks who keep recorded music close at hand. The many who enjoy RCA Victor's new Victrola 45 personal phonograph. Here is the music you want when you want it. In a compact, complete phonograph that has a convenient carrying handle. The 45 personal is far smaller than a cubic foot and is extremely lightweight, yet it gives you big phonograph performance. It's so easy to take with you on a weekend trip or for an evening out on a visit. Then, too, the Victrola 45 Personal was especially designed for handy 7-inch records, little lightweight records that can play as long as ordinary 10 or 12 inches. Yes, the 45 Personal is practical, versatile. It's beautiful to look at, wonderful to play. RCA Victor's 45 Personal Phonograph. Evidently, the shot came from behind him. The bullet entered here at the base of the skull. Hmm. wonder who he is. No identifying papers, Alec. I searched his clothing thoroughly. You better get that money out of his hand. Yeah. Rex. What is it? Say, look. He was holding on to this. A glass vial. Let me have it. wonder what's in it. Wait till I get this stopper out. There. Hmm. Well? Here, smell it. Mm. Smells like wine. Yes. You notice there's a heavy sediment at the bottom. Maybe it's poison of some kind. Mm, perhaps. Come on, Alec. Where are we going? To find a murderess in the disguise of a princess. Oh, there's a girl over there talking with that man in pirate costume. She's dressed as a princess. No, Alec, an Arabian princess, but not Egyptian. So keep looking. But if she's the murderer, she wouldn't be foolish enough to continue wearing her disguise. It stands to reason Wait. that she... What? Look over there to our right, near the entrance. Oh, yes, yes, I see her. An Arabian princess. Is she the one? I think so. Come along. Pardon me. Yes? Remember me, princess? I was kind enough to give you a light, sir. A while ago. Oh, uh, what? She's the one. She's the one, Alec. Just what is this all about? Murder, princess. As if you didn't know. And I'll have this. Oh, give me my purse. Give it back yeah, to Alec, me. Yeah, Alec, take it. Right. I believe you'll find an automatic in that purse with two shells fired. I don't know what sort of a joke this is supposed to be. Well, but... Alec. Uh, just as you said, Rex. Here's the automatic. But, uh, this gun hasn't been fired at all. Here's her passport. Her name is Kathy Peters. Destination, Cuba. All right, Miss Peters. Now that we know each other formally, 
Suppose you start explaining before I turn you over to the ship's captain for custody. Oh, please, Mr. Saunders, you mustn't do that. I've got to get to Cuba. Planning on some more murders? Believe me, I had nothing to do with that man's death. I had every reason to want him to live. You still haven't told me what his name was. I don't know. I received a message this afternoon to meet him down in that storage compartment at 11 tonight. Since dinner this evening, a strange man has followed me wherever I went. You saw that man out on the boat deck. And what about your forcing me at gunpoint to that rendezvous in the ship's hold? Well, I was afraid to go in there myself. But I just had to get that information somehow. Then when I heard the shots fired, I got panicky and ran. You mentioned information, Miss Peters. What sort? Information that will pardon an innocent man from a prison sentence. And the innocent man? Kenneth Maxton. And just what is this Maxton person to you? Kenneth is my fiancé. He was in the export business. A Cuban was found murdered in his office. And uh, Maxton, of course, is innocent. Yes, he is. Kenneth had nothing to do with the murder. It only looked like he was guilty. Mr. Saunders, believe me, he's innocent. That's why I must get to Cuba to find the proof that will release Kenneth. And uh, you're going to handle it alone? I-, I can manage. Kenneth has friends in Havana. Well, what about me, Miss Peters? Perhaps I can help. Where will you be staying? Mr. Saunders, please believe what I say. I must do this thing in my own way. And you mustn't try to follow me. It might ruin everything. If I need you, I'll call. I promise I'll call you. I checked our baggage through customs, Rex. Being sent on ahead to the hotel. What about Kathy Peters? She is still over there at the pier gate. You believe everything she told us last night? Hmm, most of it. Why? I don't know, Alec. Perhaps uh, I like the way she talks. <laughs> Honestly, Rex, sometimes you operate in a most peculiar way. Doesn't <laughs> be more like it in this case. Hey, who's that man talking to Miss Peters? I don't know. Alec. Yes? Here's the vial we found in the murdered man's hand. I want you to take it to Professor Lopez at the university. Lopez is a chemist. He's an old friend. Tell him I'd like him to analyze the content. I'll meet you at the hotel later. Okay. Where are you going? I see that Miss Peters and her escort are leaving the pier. I decided not to wait for her to call us. I'm going to follow them. Well, be careful. I'll see you later. Oh, oh, pardon me, senor. Oh, that's quite all right. Just one moment, senor. What is it? You are senor Saunders. Hmm? Senor Saunders, no. Yes, but uh, I have a message for you. From whom? The senorita, Miss Peters. She say I bring you to her later. I have carriage waiting. You come with me. How much further? When do we get there? In a moment, senor. It is the house at the bottom of the hill. Hmm? When did Miss Peters say she'd be there? We are early. The senorita say you should wait in the house for her. Hmm. Oh, oh. We are here, senor. We go inside. Hmm. This way, senor. Follow me. Senor, this is Jose. Yes. 
You are Rick's son. That's right. And you wait to see Senorita Peters. Yes. Lock the door, Maria. Hmm? And what is this? This, Senor Saunders, is a warning. You are not to see Miss Peters. You are not to look for her. There is a boat for New York tomorrow morning. You leave on that boat, Senor. And if I don't? You will leave, Senor. Jose, will he not? He will, Maria. Jose knows how to make you leave. Maria means this whip. Senor! You should not reach for your gun. Oh, I see. Now, Senor, I will show you with this whip why it is wise for you to leave on that boat tomorrow. You will leave as I say. How do you feel now, Rex? Oh, much better, Alex. I had a feeling that Kathy Peters couldn't be trusted. This was another one of her tricks. Now, don't be too sure of that. By the way, you didn't tell me what Professor Lopez's report was on the contents of the vial. Oh, yes, yes. Very peculiar. What was peculiar? Well, the fluid was just what it smelled like. Why? Mm-hmm. The strange part about it was the sediment at the bottom. Professor Lopez said it was like a podium. Like a podium? Yes, it's a fine yellow powder. Very inflammable, the professor said. And you know, it's completely waterproof. Professor Lopez took some out of the tube, lit a match to it, and immediately it went up just like that. Inflammable powder kept in wine. Hmm. Now, Alec, there's something worth thinking about. Well, frankly, as far as I can see, the only thing worth thinking about right now is for us to leave Havana on that boat tomorrow morning. We're not leaving. But, Rex, after what happened to you this afternoon, something worse might happen if we don't go. They mean business. And I mean business, too. We're not leaving until I find Kathy Peters. Hello? Mr. Saunders, this is Kathy Peters. Miss Peters, where are you? We've been trying to locate you for days. Listen to me, Mr. Saunders. There isn't much time for me to talk. Can you meet me tonight? Yes, where? I'm sending someone to your hotel to bring you to me. Well, thank you, Miss Peters. I had rather bad luck with the previous guy. Yes, I know. I heard about it. But this man can be trusted. His name is Manuel. I said that I would call you when I needed your help. Well, I need it now. Yes? Senor Saunders? Yes. I am from Senorita Peters. My name is Manuel. All right, Manuel. Just a minute. Alec. Yes? He's here. Well, I'm ready. This way, Senor Saunders. That's the rear exit. See, Senor. I'm the safest. Manuel. See? Where are we meeting, Miss Peters? Senor, you will meet her. Down, Alec. Look out. Back to the climax of our story in a moment. Holidays are always fun for the whole family, but here's a way to have more fun every day all year round. 
Wherever you go, take a world of entertainment right along with you. Take an RCA Victor portable radio. At the beach, in the mountains, on a picnic, keep an RCA Victor portable radio close at hand. It's good company anywhere. It makes a holiday more fun when you have your favorite programs right there at your fingertips. And RCA Victor portables are the best you can buy. They're compact and lightweight, easy to carry, yet you're assured of top performance on battery operation. What's more, RCA Victor portables work just as well plugged in at home with all the tone and volume you'd expect from a large table model. Yes, the fourth has been fun. And you'll have a lot more fun to look forward to all year round with your RCA Victor portable radio. Not a sign of anyone, Rex, in the hall or on the stairway. How was he hurt bad? Yes, Alex, very bad. Senor Santos. Easy, Manuel. Listen, please, to me. Senorita Peters. At La Paloma. She wait for you at bar. You go. Well, he's dead, Alex. Just as Manuel said. Now perhaps we'll get the real truth at last. Hello, Saunders. Huh? Remember me? Oh, yes. Marty Gibbons. I rarely forget a name I've seen on a police blotter. Alec, if I thought it worthwhile, I'd introduce you to Mr. Gibbons, but uh, it isn't. Hmm. Still the same Saunders, then. Eh? Characters have a habit of remaining constant. I assume you're still the same Gibbons. Oh, you've, uh, you've got me wrong, Saunders. I'm just a legitimate businessman. Down here in Cuba for your health, I suppose. No. No, for my business. You see, I run this spot. That'll be Havana's worry. Oh, you have it wrong, Saunders. I'm playing things on your side of the law from here on in. Gonna get married. I'll extend my condolences to your bride. Oh, here she comes now. I'd like you to meet her. Rex, look, it's... <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, Alex. It's careless on me. Oh, Marty, I thought you'd never get here. I've been waiting. Kathy, I, uh, I want you to meet an acquaintance of mine from the States. Saunders, my fiance, Kathy Peters. How do you do, Mr. Saunders? How do you do? He's got class, huh, Saunders? Oh, Marty, Well, oh, baby, let's get going, huh? I, I don't want to give any guy too long a look at you before I slip that ring on the third finger. I'll see you around, Saunders. <sighs> I told you she was a trickster. Now, where do we stand? That all depends on what's in this lipstick. Where'd you get that? Miss Peters slipped it into my palm when we shook hands a moment ago. Huh? And there's a note in it. What does it say? Meet me in an hour in the cellar of Gibbon's house. It's number 32, Street of the Angels. I leave the door to the cellar stairs unlocked. I found the evidence that will free Kenneth Maxton. <laughs> Hello, Kathy. 
What's the matter, baby? You look surprised to see me. Well, it's, it's nothing, Marty. I just didn't expect you home this early. I didn't expect to find you down here in the cellar. Well, I was looking for a bottle of wine. I thought we could have a drink together when you came in. You dirty little snake. I know what you were doing down here. I know what you were playing me for all along. Marty, look... What's the matter with you? You came down here to Cuba to find out how your boyfriend, Maxton, was framed. All right. So I'll tell you how he was framed. Just to make sure you know it once and for good. I did it. I knocked off that guy in his office. He was going to blab to your boyfriend what was in those wine bottles I had Maxton shipping down here as my forwarding agent. Me. I did it, baby. So now you know all about it. Yes, Marty. So now I know. I'm wise to all your tricks, baby. I saw you palm that lipstick to Saunders at the La Paloma. That lipstick had an invite in it for Saunders to come here. That was it, wasn't it? Yes. That was it. Okay, so I'll be expecting him. And when he gets here, I'll take care of both of you together. I'll wrap you up for keeps. You're a little late what? for that, Marty. Saunders. I wouldn't try to reach for that pocket, Gibbons. Oh, yes, I might warn you. Alec has rather a sensitive trigger finger. An extra sensitive at this moment, I might add. And by the way, Marty, I found your confession most gratifying. It parallels my deductions about you. To a T. As I said to you previously this evening, characters have a habit of remaining constant. Wouldn't be like you, Marty, just to import wine down here unless there was something special added. In this case, an incendiary powder like, uh, like a podium. In the hands of the wrong parties, in certain countries, it could stir up the desired confusion. And as for your future, Marty, well, that's going up in smoke. <laughs> It was one of Marty's henchmen who murdered the man in that storage compartment in the ship's hold. Yes, Kathy. He was rounded up with the rest of Marty's gang. They'll all stand trial in the Cuban court, with the exception of Marty, of course. Just as soon as the expedition is arranged, Marty will make his last trip back to the States. And Kenneth will be free? And Kenneth will be free. I don't know how to thank you for all you've done. So do you mind if I... If you what, Kathy? If I just kiss you. Thank you. Good night. Good night, Princess. And so I stand here on the bow of the ship as we head for home. And a soft breeze ripples the moonlit waters of the Caribbean. I stand here... And I think of the strange adventures that have just ended. And I think especially of her. As I shall probably think of her for quite some time to come. In a moment, Rex Harrison will return to tell you about next week's story. 
First, an invitation from RCA Victor. Next chance you get, drop into your dealers and look over the wide variety of RCA Victor home instruments designed to bring you the very finest in home entertainment. We know you'll find just the right instrument for family fun at a price that will fit your family budget. Fine instruments with world-famous RCA Victor quality built into every feature and detail. See them tomorrow at your RCA Victor dealer. Now, here is Rex Harrison, internationally famous star of stage and screen, to tell you about next week's adventure from the private files of Rex Sunder. Next week, it's concerning travel. Concerning travel. Commonly termed a broadening experience, it can also be a leveling one, especially when murder is along as a silent companion. <laughs> You have been listening to another intriguing adventure transcribed from the private files of Rex Saunders, written by Ed Adamson. In the cast were Leon Janney as Alex and Leslie Woods as Kathy. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. This is Kenneth Banghart speaking for RCA Victor. Now listen to me, and never forget it. Crime is a sucker's road. And those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. There's no other end, but they never learn. It was ugly from the start this time. Vicious blackmail that mushroomed into murder and all because a wild artist on a hilltop. A man in a wheelchair and a red-haired manicurist were held too tight together. I won small ebony link. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Ebony Link. Spent a dismal day tracking down another wise guy. He thought he could see fast money over the sights of a 45. But it ended up like they all do. He was flat on his face in an alley, his life dripping into a sewer. It was what he deserved, and the only feeling I got from it was that I wanted a bath bad. So I went home, but when I stepped out of the elevator and started down the hall, I knew I'd have to postpone it. Because leaning on my doorbell was a redhead who looked very good from a distance. But she lost ground with every step I took. Because the closer I got, the more I saw of a mouth shaped by indecision. Of eyes that were nothing but masquerade caginess and shallow green. And flashy clothes that carried the kind of bargain basement label you can't tear off. Good evening. Looking for me? Yeah, you're a private detective named Marlowe. I am? Come on in. Have a chair, Miss... Uh, uh, Johnson, thanks. What's your difficulty, Miss Johnson? Oh, it's not me. It's my sister up in Santa Barbara. Can you go there right away, 812 Seaview Road? Uh, maybe you should tell me what it's all about, huh? Well, uh, she loaned a gentleman friend of hers some money. Okay, and... okay. That's enough of the sister act, baby. What's the gag? Gag? Why, 
I, I don't think I understand. Number one, there's no 812 on Seaview Road. It runs into the ocean at the 600 block. I know. I used to live there. But, but number I... Number two, when picking a phony name, Johnson is the second most popular in the book. Yeah, but And I... number three, baby, me hiring out as a patsy of any kind is lousy for my business. So you better... Stick him up. Oh, no. I mean it. And I'll shoot if you follow me. Okay, kid. Just don't slam the door on your way out. She backed out fast, pulling the door closed as she went. They gave her five seconds head start and then looked in time to see the top of her hat disappearing down the stairs. But before I could follow her, the elevator gate slid open and a dapper man with a square face I'd seen somewhere before hailed me. Certainly glad I found you, sir. Remember me? Ramsey, Mr. Ivan Pack's chauffeur. Oh, yeah. He wants to see you, sir. Says it's very urgent. Yeah, but I... Well, okay, Ramsey. Where's Mr. Pack now? Waiting downstairs in the car, sir. I'll show you. We tried your office first, but it was locked. We were afraid you might have gone out of town. You aren't going, I hope. Uh, no, no, but it was close. By the way, how is Mr. Pack these days? Still confined to his wheelchair? Yes, sir. But he gets around fairly well with me to help him, of course. Mm-hmm. What's the matter, Mr. Marlowe? Looking for someone? Not exactly, Ramsey. Chances are she ducked out the back way and still running. Oh, I beg your pardon, sir. This way, Mr. Marlowe. Here we are. Oh. Hello, Ivan. Get in, Marlowe. Thank goodness we found you. Well, just, just drive around the block, Ramsey. He said it was urgent. Is it really that bad? Yes, it is. Roll up the glass there, Marlowe. It's best if even Ramsey doesn't hear this. Okay. That's it. Well, Marlowe, I'm being blackmailed again. Huh? It happened six months ago for 10000 This time it's 50000 Brother, what have they got on you, Evan? What's the lever? The lever is that I happen to love my wife, Leona. That I happen to feel it's my duty as a husband to protect her reputation and shield her from heartbreak. I still don't get it. Marlowe, I tell you this because you're the only person I can trust. Leona spent a year in prison back east when she was a kid. But that's nothing to be ashamed of all your life. I know, I know. Take it easy. I'm, I'm sorry. Bluntly, I can't afford to throw that much money away. On the other hand, if I don't pay, they threaten to expose Leona as a jailbird. She couldn't stand that, Marla. Mm-hmm. I know her. She ran away the first time this happened. She said she wouldn't be that kind of burden to me. If she finds out about this new demand, she may do something even more desperate. Blackmail's always tough. Who's doing it? I don't know. More, all we have to go on is this letter. Let's see. Here. It's got an L.A. postmark. The stationery is a high grade that doesn't match that cheap envelope. Mm-hmm. And the top of the page has been cut off, see? Yeah. Strange backhand, too, huh? Hey, hey this demands a payoff by 12.30 tonight. Why didn't you give me more time? I just got the letter this afternoon. Yeah. Look, Marlowe, I realize what you're up against. Try, try, will you? Find out who wrote that letter. I have two alternatives. Pay him, kill him. Well, I'm no killer. I'll pay if I have to. But maybe, with luck and your help, we can find a soft spot in his armor. What do you say? Well, I'll try. Don't take any bets, Ivan. Ivan said he'd be in his office all night, then dropped me off at home where I got in my own car, pulled around a big gray sedan in the driveway, and hauled a small sample of the blackmail stationery into the police lab. There I got a break. Boys had it classified in 30 minutes, and after another 30, handed me the names of two business houses and 12 hotels in the city that used it. It's too many to check in the time allowed, so I called Ivan Pack and started down the list. He stopped me at the fourth hotel, which was the Beverly Crest, with the word that his wife, Leona, had spent a lot of time and money shopping in the hotel's exclusive arcade. So I drove out to the Beverly Crest, watching a big gray sedan in my rearview mirror most of the way. But in the hotel, I killed another hour drawing blanks, even at the writing room blotters. Until, on the way out, I got another break. 
The beauty shop was closing for the night, and inside, slipping a coat over her manicurist's uniform, was a redhead. The same redhead who had tried to sack-track me to Santa Barbara. I followed her out of the hotel, and when she got around to the back, I stopped her. What do you want? I got curious about your sister, sister. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have a sister, and I never saw you before in my life. That's wishful thinking, baby. You can talk here or over a desk at police headquarters, but you're going to talk. Now, which is it? Wait a minute. No cops. All right. Okay, Marlo. Sure. I'll talk. I got a sister in Santa Barbara, all right. She's a mermaid. She comes up once a year to fish for seagulls, and she wanted you to bait the hook. Come on, come on. Straighten it out. You're smack in the middle of a lot of trouble, and it's getting deeper fast. Believe no, me. No, I'm not, wise guy. You're in the middle. In fact, you got trouble right behind you. Stop oh. By the time I got untangled from the ash cans, all I could see was the back of a big gray sedan taking a corner so fast I only caught the last three numbers of his tag. 440. But as I stood up and dusted myself off, I saw something black and shiny. It was a five-sided ebony cufflink. I dropped it in my pocket as I went inside the hotel again. A fiver to a bellhop got me the manicurist's real name, Rhea Fleming. But even a ten-spot failed to raise her address, so I called my client again, tried Rhea's name on him. When that missed, I asked permission to go and see Leona about it. That got me 60 seconds of argument, ten of dead silence, and finally a very reluctant okay from Ivan. Twenty minutes later, I pulled up at 94 Camden Drive, in front of a house sprawling in Spanish that was home to Ivan and Leona Pack, and the delicate dark girl with the shy gray eyes who answered the door was Leona herself. Yes? I'm uh, Philip Marlowe from the Sequoia Credit Justice, Mrs. Pack. I'm told you patronize a manicurist, Miss Rhea Fleming at the Beverly Crest Hotel. Why, yes, occasionally. Is, is anything wrong? Oh, no, no, nothing serious at all. May I come in? Oh, of course. I'd like to ask you a few questions about Miss Fleming. Well, I, I really don't know her very well. Oh, I understand that. But you might know where she lives, for instance, huh? Well, I did happen to drop her off one evening oh? at the corner of Sunset and Mariposa, I think. Oh, won't you sit down, Mr. Oh, Marlowe? thanks. Uh, where did she live before she came to Los Angeles? Well, I, I have no idea. You don't, huh? Well, do you happen to know if she writes in a heavy, angular backhand? A heavy... Mm-hmm. Mr. Marlowe? May I see your credentials? Why, of course, if you wish. No, don't bother. It's happened again, hasn't it? Ivan's received another letter, and I'm... Who are you, really? Private detective working for Ivan. Oh, that's a cheap trick, I admit it. But we wanted to keep this from you, Leona. I won't let it happen. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, listen to me. (laughs) Ivan's doing everything possible to stop this business. Now, give us a chance. You're running away now. It would be the worst thing you could do to it. It's so terribly unfair, Mom. We're on your side. Don't you understand that? And you're in a position to help us, if you will. Marlo, is it... Is it Rhea Fleming? Well, she's in on it, but not alone. She doesn't have the brains. But whoever is behind it belongs to this ebony cufflink. <clears throat> Ever see it before, Leona? Think hard. No. No, I haven't. Oh, it's too bad. Well, do you happen to know anybody who drives a big gray sedan? The, the license number ends in 440. Well, that might be Bruce Moracek. Moracek, who's he? An artist I've been hired to do a portrait of me. Mm-hmm. Picture isn't finished yet. It may never be. Bruce is too temperamental and exacting. But why did you ask about him, Marlowe? Yeah, because I've been tailed by a gray sedan since I first started in this mess. Oh, it couldn't be Bruce. I'm sure of that. Now, we'll see. And, Leona, until you hear from me again, promise you won't do anything rash, huh? Where, where are you going now, Marlowe? Put some pressure on Rhea Fleming. Her character has all the sterling qualities of mud pie, and I think she'll crack just as easily. So long, Leon. I'll call you. 
spite of what Leona had said, I still thought there might be more to Bruce Morachek than ever got on canvas. When I was out of the house and halfway to my car, I knew I'd have a chance to find out because across the street, a door flew open on a big gray sedan. Better than six feet of swarthy but handsome man clambered out and rushed toward me. It wasn't the lock of black wavy hair that dangled dashingly over one eye, but the fact that his hands were curled into very large fists. It gave me a definite demorous feeling about him, and the closer he got, the more certain I was that I'd have to let him have it first. When he got within reach, I did just that. Hi! And why are you thinking that one over, chum? Try this. How long have you had on that polo shirt? Speak up. All day. Confound you. But you don't have to knock me down to find that out, you idiot. No, it was faster that way, and I'm not through yet. You've been tagging me all night, and I don't like it. How come? You wouldn't understand. Try me. Come on. I haven't got all much time. All right, all right. Until yesterday, I was working on a portrait of Mrs. Pack. Yeah? She's an exquisite subject, but I, I quit because it, it became impossible. Mm-hmm. She's being so upset by something or someone, she doesn't even look like the same person from one day to the next. And that's supposed to explain why you've been tailing me all over town? Uh, I told you you wouldn't understand. A portrait artist is not only a painter. He isn't, huh? He must be a psychologist, a doctor, mm. even even a detective, if necessary, when his subject's beauty is being destroyed before his eyes. Oh, come on. It's true. Uh, so I followed Mr. Pat to you and you to the Beverly Crest Hotel because you are up to something. I want to know what it is. Mm-hmm. Naturally, it wasn't you who put the slug on me at the hotel, huh? The what? The slug. Slug. Ah, no, no, uh. no. I saw you walk around to the back, but... The time I got there, a car was driving off. I thought you were in it, so I tried to follow, but I lost it. Yeah? And then I came up here. Well, let me tell you something, Morachek, for your own good and your subjects. If you're on the level, go home. And if you're not on the level, brother, you better get out of town while you still can. Good night! I looked back just before I turned the corner, and Morachek was still standing where I'd left him. So I drove out to Sunset and down to Mariposa, where I parked and started walking. I was more than an hour ringing doorbells, interviewing kids, husbands, and homemakers, and running down false leads before I finally found the mailbox labeled Rear Fleming Rear in a brown stucco two blocks south. I hacked my way through the underbrush hugging the front house to a converted guest cottage in the back, numbered 8811. I didn't bother to knock. I just walked in. Hey, darling, I was beginning to think you'd never get... Milo, get out! Get out of here, I'll scream. I scream louder. Who's the boyfriend you're expecting, Rhea? I don't have a boyfriend. It wasn't your grandfather that piled me up at the hotel tonight, baby. It's your last chance. Who was it? I don't seem to recall the incident you refer to, Ma. Now, listen, oh. jerk. You're in a rotten blackmailing game right up to your earrings. And what's more, your extortion letter went through the mail. Did you get that? That's a federal rap. You can't beat it. And I'm going to see that you don't because I'm sick and tired of fooling with you. You're too stupid to realize when you're late. Federal rap. I, I didn't know that, Marlowe. Who are you calling? Cops, of course. I'm through. I'm putting you out of circulation right now. No, wait. Don't do that. I, I'll tell you who's with me. Okay. It, it... No, I can't. Rhea, come back here, you fool. No, 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 no. Rhea. Holy smoke. Rhea. Rhea, who was it? Who did this? Gee, I, I didn't figure it'd go. This far. I just didn't realize. I. No, I guess you didn't, baby. One down and one to go. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first. If you like the weather here, cloudy with threats, torrid with action, showers of trouble later tonight and tomorrow, you'll find more of the same on Sundays when Danny Clover and Sam Spade go into action. 
Danny Clover is the thoroughly human, fast-thinking detective of Broadway is my beat. And Sam Spade is the... Well, who else but the Sam Spade of Dashiell Hammett's fertile, ingenious brain. On most of these same CBS stations tomorrow, you'll find Danny Clover prowling the Great White Way late in the afternoon and Sam Spade on the hunt in the evening. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Ebony Link. Fleming's face relaxed in death. The gaping, frightened people who make up every street scene began to gather. And as each newcomer timidly edged forward and then caught his breath at the sight of the dead girl, and in a small, tight voice asked whoever was standing next to him what had happened, only one thought kept running through my mind. Leona's blackmailer and the murderer of Rhea were one and the same. So leaving my card with an old toothless biddy who demanded to know why I was running away before the police arrived, I piled into my car and headed for Ivan Pack's office on La Brea. I pulled to a stop just as the chauffeur named Ramsey darted out of the building and into the family limousine, parked at the curb, and pulled away fast. But since Pack was the man I wanted to see, I dismissed the thought of a not-so-merry chase, went to the door, and knocked. Five minutes went by before my client wheeled himself out of an inner cubbyhole and opened up. And another five while I brought him up to date, blow by blow, the redhead's violent death included. Murdered Marlowe? Yeah. My money, the noose fits whoever she's working for, who is also the party that dropped me in the alley behind the Beverly Crest Hotel, and this ebony cufflink and doing it. Ever see it before? Why, no, no, I haven't. You sure, Ivan? Sure it wasn't once holding a lot of fancy shirt together for one Mr. Morocek, maybe? Bruce? Well, why him, Marlowe? Because he's been tagging me all night. Say, tell me, Ivan, how well do you know him? I met him about six or seven months ago at my club. I, I don't remember who introduced us. Yeah, well, that fits. The blackmail started just about that time. Now, look, just to make it a little tighter all the way around, you can't recall who recommended him to you as just the right man to paint Leona's picture, can you? No, I can't. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, Marlowe, neither can I recall having heard anything bad about him. No. Now, look, you say he's been following you all night. Close enough to do a time step. What are you getting at? Just this. Was he around the place where the girl was killed? Well, to my knowledge, no. But that shouldn't mean too much because the murder happened after we had our little run-in. So he'd naturally be careful about my seeing him. Well. Besides, Ivan, he was going to commit murder, so it's a cinch you'd arrive and depart from 8811 Mariposa without fanfare. Mariposa? Yeah. 8811 Mariposa, Marlowe? Yeah. But that's the address I just saw on a slip of paper in Ramsey's desk. There was a phone number, too. Wait a minute. Your chauffeur's Rhea Fleming's address? Yes. Here, get hold of my wheelchair. Sure. It's that far desk there, just inside that partition. You know, Ivan, when I pulled up outside here, I saw Ramsey leave. You know where he was going? Yes, he was going to dinner. Hmm. Unless he hasn't eaten in five years, I don't think that's where he was going. He lurched from the curb like it was on fire. Here you are, Marlowe. The top drawer on the right. Hold the back. I see it. Yeah. 8811 Mariposa, all right. Phone number and nothing else except... Except this. What did you find, Marlowe? A cufflink, Ivan. Twin to the one in my pocket. And maybe a murderer who isn't named Marachek. You mean Ramsey? Yeah. Oh, no, no. That couldn't be. Why not? Ramsey's been here with me for the past two hours. So you mustn't discount Morachek or anyone else just because of this cufflink and the address. Well, in that case, no. But I can include Ramsey along with the late Miss Fleming as at least one accomplice on what's fast getting to be a very elaborate setup. Ivan, do you know where Morachek lives? Yes, at his studio, Lookout Mountain Road, mm-hmm. just off Laurel Canyon Boulevard. Laurel Canyon. Well, I don't know the exact address, but you ought to be able to get that from Leona. Yeah. Well, I'll get in touch with you later, Ivan. 
Leona. Now, listen hard. Uh, did Bruce Marachek come up to see you after I left? Yes, he did. What did he say? Well, only that he'd collided with you on the stairs and that he wanted to know who you were, what mm. business you had with me. Just tell him? Of course not. I wouldn't tell anybody anything about this. He didn't like that, huh? No, as a matter of fact, that's the reason he went home. Right away? Within five minutes. Yeah. He said he was going back to his studio and he'd be there all night if I needed any protection. But why? Is it because of something you found out at Rhea's place? No, it runs the other way. It's what I didn't find out. She was murdered, Leona. She was... Whoever's blackmailing you, I'm positive. But whether or not that's Marachek, I don't know yet. Now, look, what's the number of his place on Lookout Mountain Road, Leona? Come on, fast. Uh, 173. 173. But Thank you, you and goodbye. I was 20 minutes wriggling through the thick Hollywood traffic to Laurel Canyon, then another 10 climbing Lookout Mountain Road, which was an abrupt spiral of macadam that belonged in the Alps. So when I parked away from the bay window with Ruth, there was numbered 173. I started up through the junior jungle that led to the front door. It was exactly 10 o'clock. And considering the zest of my last meeting with the artist, a good time for me to be careful. So when I knocked on the heavy oak that showed splashes of yellow at the threshold, I did it with the barrel of my 38. When I got no answer, I tried again, louder. It was then that Marachek replied, but not as I had expected, because he was behind me. And his greeting was a fist the size of a cannonball coming at the side of my head fast. <laughs> Now, Marlo, I'll take your gun here. And if I have to use it, I will. No doubt. It worked before. Huh? What are you talking about? Come on, Buster. Get off it. You act like a paint. Let's not waste each other's time. All right. Then inside, Marlo, where we can get to the point fast and in privacy. Go on. All right. The door is not locked, detective. I don't know what you want here. But I'm going to find out, believe me. You can skip the thumbscrews, Rembrandt. I'll make it very plain for you. I want to know why you think you can get away with a doubleheader like blackmailing Leona and murdering your own accomplice. Any comment? Yes, you're either stupid or a raving maniac, Now, listen, Marlo. No, no, you listen to me. Leona Peck is a good friend of mine, Marlo. I'm very fond of her. I'm not going to stand here and be accused of blackmailing her. And I suppose that talk of murder at 8811 Mariposa also offends, huh? It does. And until you mentioned it, Marlo, I didn't even know Leona's trouble was blackmail. And as for a murder at that something or a Mariposa, I have been here painting since I last saw you. Which who will swear to? Nobody. Ah. But if you will step over here, you can see that this canvas is fresh, that the paint is still... It was my chance. The second he got in front of his canvas, he forgot he was holding my thirty-eight in his hand. And as he talked, he pointed with the barrel like it was a paintbrush. When I was close to him and my right foot was against one leg of the easel, the time was right. are you satisfied? Not quite! Mr. Marachek! Now, since I'll also use this gun if I have to, get up. Oh, no, Stand over there against that wall. Come on. You're going to get a chance to tell that story again, Bruce boy, but this time to the police. And I... Hey. Hey, Marachek. What? That painting there. That's Leona, right? Huh? Of course that's Leona. Does it look like a battleship? No comment. But also, Marachek, it looks like a lot more, and by that I mean the answer to who's both the blackmailer of Leona and Rhea Fleming's killer. Now I think I know. Apologies and farewell, Buster. You're nothing worse than a sucker. Yeah, but, but, Marlo, I don't understand. Where are you going? To Leona's place. Friend Ramsey is due there at the moment, and that may mean murder again. So long, Rembrandt. Once I was off the mountain, back onto Laurel Canyon, then over to Sunset, and pointed toward Beverly Hills and Leona's house on Camden Drive. I kept my right foot heavy on the accelerator, and my mind working just as fast. Because no matter which way I added things, I was still basing a lot on a little. And a few important points shy of figuring the whole deal. And five minutes later, when I was parked and walking toward the door of number 94, nothing was any clearer. 
But then, it didn't seem to matter because... When I glanced in a side window as I reached for the doorbell, I saw Leona sitting alone on the edge of the couch like it was going to blow up any minute. Her face, which was frozen in the half-crazed expression of the condemned man watching his executioner sharpen an axe, told me that Brother Ramsey was already present and probably out of my view with at least a gun in his hand. But since I'd gone this far in what I knew to be a very sorry case, I decided to play a chin-out and hand tight over 38 in pocket. Who is it? It's me, Leona Marlowe. Marlowe, I... I look aside. Not a bad one, though. <laughs> Alone? Uh, yes. Yes, come in, won't you? I've been expecting you. Yeah. Well, I just left Mora check, Leona. I was wrong about him being your blackmailer, I mean. Of course you were. That's mm. what I tried to tell you on the phone, Phil. What finally convinced you? A picture. Uh, you mind if I sit down? I've been doing a lot of running around tonight. Oh, of course. Mm. What picture, Phil? Hmm? Oh, the one he did of you. I can't say much for it, though. No, it isn't too good, is it? Mm-mm. But... How'd it tell me the boy genius, wasn't it? Yes, I'm interested. Oh, you should be, Leona. It was a blouse you had on, remember? A white one with cufflinks. Cufflinks? Mm-hmm. Ebony ones, like this. The one I showed you when I was here earlier. One you said you didn't recognize. The one out of the set you must have given Ramsey as a present after Bruce Morachek was through painting your picture... The one that says the blackmailer of Mr. Ivan Pack is you, Mrs. Ivan Pack. No. And you killed Rhea Fleming, too. No, no, you're wrong, Marlowe. Why would I kill Rhea? For the same reason you denied recognizing the cufflink. You didn't want me to get to Ramsey, so oh, no, you killed wrong. Rhea before she could name him no, when I, I was at the cottage. And then you still couldn't get oh, me no. to Ramsey because if I pressured him enough, I'd have to find out his game was cutting oh, in on no. you because he knew you were blackmailing yourself. I heard enough. You're smart, Marlowe, very smart. But how do you think you're going to prove all this? Oh, answer All me. right. Ramsey figured you killed his girlfriend, Rhea. We sent him flying up here from no. Ivan's office. To no, demand a bigger cut. Or maybe all of the 50 grand. I don't now know that you've graduated from blackmail and murder, I've been waiting and watching You're him wrong, to make a move. Milo, you're but wrong. if he hasn't, Leona, he must be dead. No. Here, in this no, house, yes, probably no. in this room. And that, no, Mrs. Black, you won't be able to explain away. Now, where is no. Where, Leona? No. He... He's there, Marlowe. Behind the couch. I called Ivan Pack and told him he wouldn't have to pay the blackmail money and why. There was a long silence before he said goodbye and I went to police headquarters where an uncomfortable hour and a half went by before homicide was satisfied and Leona had signed a complete confession. So by the time I got over to my client's office on La Brea where I knew I had to go, it was almost 12.30. The hour originally set for the payoff. When I was inside and sitting next to the man in the wheelchair whose watered eyes never left my face, it was exactly that, straight up and down. A little clock in the corner of the room said so. Well, Marlowe, I just saved $50,000, didn't I? Maybe a little more than that, Ivan. Maybe unhappiness for years to come, huh? Yes, yes, I suppose so. Leona wanted two things, Ivan. Your dough and Bruce Morachek. She didn't get either one. The ten grand you paid the first time and the money she was going to get tonight would have been a bait. <laughs> Catch a starving artist. But I was wrong about him. He wasn't interested, except as an artist. And your chauffeur and your wife's manicurist knew enough between them to try to get a piece of that dough for themselves. Yes, I, I owe you a lot, Marlowe. Oh. After all, I just said I saved $50,000, didn't I? Even though I lost a wife. Good night, Marlowe. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Sure. Night, Evan. 
Outside, the night air was clear. Almost cold. Felt good against my face, so... When I got to where my car was parked, I didn't get in right away, but stood next to it. Thought about Ivan Pack, two people he trusted most. His wife and his chauffeur. One already dead, the other soon would be. I reached into my pocket for a cigarette and came out and stayed with a cufflink. The ebony cufflink. Jet black, clear through. I dropped it into the gutter where it belonged. Then got into my car and went home. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Edgar Barrier, Gene Bates, Larry Dobkin, Georgia Ellis, and Ron Brogan. The special music is by Richard O'Runt. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... I was hired to find a thief, and I did. A thousand miles from home. But first I found a hammy Othello, a lush with a luger, and a fresh corpse in the closet. All because the only woman in sight wouldn't play fair. There's gold in them trills when just a little bit later tonight, Sing It Again comes along, offering a grand prize of $52,000 to some lucky CBS listener. Phone calls will be going out to listeners from coast to coast asking for answers to the merry, tuneful riddle songs, which, if you solve one correctly, gives you a chance at the fabulous Phantom Voice Award. Tonight, it's 27000 in wonderful prizes if you can tell who the Phantom is, plus 25000 in cash if you can answer one more question about him. So stay tuned to CBS for Sing It Again, which comes along later tonight, and for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of the same CBS network stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Hey, everyone. This is O.T.R. Rob. I thought I would step in here and talk a little bit about Rogue's Gallery. And primarily, you know, Dick Powell, uh, who I think was probably one of the best-liked best loved and most beloved actors of his time. And it was really a sad moment when we learned that both he and Jack Carson passed away on the same day in 1961. And throughout Dick's career, when he was a song and dance man, he was not as shy to do radio. In fact, I think he even hosted a radio show at one point. And he was, you know, butter could not melt in his mouth. He was just so nice to everyone and uh, not no vitriol at all and was a very congenial host and well-liked among everyone who heard the radio program. And there's a lot that has been made about Rogue's Gallery 
in particular because how many times that Richard Rogue was conked on the head. And I would argue with anyone out there that that never happened on in every episode like some of the writers insisted that it did. And I would think there might be someone out there who might be keeping track for me or will keep track for me of all the Rogues Galleries episode where Dick Powell or the character Richard Rogue didn't get conked on the head, didn't get knocked out. And I would say that that probably is about four times. Although the writers of uh, Rogues Gallery, not the writers, but the reviewers of Rogues Gallery, would insist that every episode, yeah, he got conked on the head. I don't think so. But if someone would be so kind as to keep track for me, I would really love it and let me know at otrrob50 at gmail.com. Take care of yourself. Get your vaccination. Get your booster shot. Social distance. Wear your mask and maybe we'll get back to normal. And I'm out. W. Fitch Company presents Dick Powell as Private Detective Richard Rogue. In Rogue's Gallery. Rogue speaking. Well, tonight you're going to meet some charming people. And you're going to run into a little bit of very fancy murder. The name of the story is... Little Drops of Rain. But before we get into our story, here's Jim Doyle, the man from the Fitch Company. Did you know that there are over 50 million men in the United States who shave? Yes, that's a lot of men. It was in the interest of these 50 million shavers that Fitch Company chemists and technicians went to work in their laboratories and came up with Fitch's No Brush, a shaving cream especially designed to give a solid comfort shave. You see, Fitch's No Brush shaving cream contains not one but three important shaving ingredients that work together to give you a smoother, faster shave. It also contains a special skin conditioner ingredient. Men appreciate this ingredient because it has a soothing effect on the skin the instant it's applied, and it keeps the skin feeling smooth and refreshed long after the shave is finished. Men also like the just-right consistency of Fitch's No Brush. It's neither too thick nor too thin. It's not greasy and won't clog the razor. If you're among those who prefer a lather cream, try Fitch's Brush Cream. It gives a rich, dense lather that wilts whiskers completely soft for a clean, fast shave. Both Fitch's Brush and Fitch's No Brush Shaving Cream come in big 25 and 50 cent sizes. Try a jar. You'll find it easier on your razor and easier on you. Thank you, Jim. Now, I'd like to tell my story. Okay, here's Dick Powell as Private Detective Richard Rogue in another personally conducted tour through... Rogue's Gallery. still confined to my little cranked-up downy couch in the hospital, but not as still as I was last week. I am now allowed to get up and totter around a little, and I use the word totter advisedly. 
My legs act like strangers who have different political beliefs and my knees have suddenly developed sideways hinges. But my nurses, ah, my nurses. Yes, they're beautiful and tender and resistant. And speaking of nurses, nurses are girls and girls are my favorite pastime. And that brings me up to the girl who has done the most to confuse my life. Liza, the girl I was so sincerely in love with a couple of months ago. Liza was in to see me. She just left and we were talking about the time when I showed up at her apartment for a date. It was raining out and I was sitting at the piano doodling around a little bit. I don't want to go to a nightclub tonight, Richard. I'm too tired. Let's just go to a show, shall we? Anything you say, baby. That's the kind of guy I am. I want to see two girls in a sailor. It's playing at the Rialto. June Allison's in that, isn't she? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, that's for me, then. You think so? Definitely. You think she's prettier than I am? Well, you're, you're not in pictures, Angel. Do you think she's prettier than I am? Well, well... You're a, you're a different type. Are you going to answer me? Oh, oh you're jealous. <laughs> How can you be jealous of a girl I don't even know? Give me a kiss. No. Oh, but baby, I love you. I love you like anything. Just... All right, all right, all right. Pop then. I don't care. June is busting out all over. All over the meadow and the hill. Busts are busting out of bushes, and the robin river pushes every little wheel that wheels beside a mill. June is busting out all over. The feeling is getting so intense. That the young Virginia creepers have been hugging the bejeepers Out of all the morning glories on the fence Because it's June June, June, June You're Jeff. insufferable, Richard Rogue Oh, now quit potting Come on over here, on the bench by me Are we going to a show or not? Sure Get your lipstick on again and we'll see what... Oh. I'll get it. No, I'll answer. It's probably George. Oh, George. Well, I'll tell him, that homewrecker. Hello. Is Mr. Rogue there? Mm, speaking. Uh, this is your call service, Mr. Rogue. We got a call for you. Oh, uh, oh. Who is it? Uh, uh, Mrs. Harvey Burgess says it's very important. Okay, put her on. Right. Oh, put her on. Who is... It? Shh. Hello. Uh, Richard Rogue speaking. This is Mrs. Harvey Burgess. Yes? I must see you at once, Mr. Rogue. Oh, well, any time tomorrow, Mrs. I Burgess. I must see you tonight, immediately. It is most important. Well, can't you tell me about it over the phone? Oh, no. Could you come to my house at once? Uh, what's the address? 485 Hillcrest. You'll be well paid for your time. Please hurry. I'll be right out, Mrs. Burgess. Wait for me. I'll be right back, honey. Go on. Go on out to see Mrs. Burgess. Don't mind me, Dick Tracy. Well, what could I do? 
Mrs. Harvey Burgess was the wife of a tycoon with a dollar for every Democrat in Georgia. I tried to explain to Liza, but I was talking to myself and I left for the Burgess residence. <laughs> I left Liza burning like Mrs. O'Leary's barn. The Burgess mansion was a huge colonial affair. George Washington could have slept there every night. He was at Valley Forge and never seen the same room twice. A butler who talked like he was choking to death on an olive pit conducted me into the library and uh, into the presence of Mrs. Harvey Burgess. Oh, my. What a presence. She was sitting in front of the open fire, filling out a hostess gown that didn't straighten out any of the curves she featured. I pulled my eyes back into my head and tried not to look too interested. Sit down, Mr. Rogue. Oh, uh, thank you. I, I'm i in a bit of a hurry tonight, Mrs. Burgess. As a matter of fact, I... Mr. Rogue, my husband is making a fool of himself. Yes? He's lost his mind completely over a secretary in his office. His secretary. A girl by the name of Helen Stark. You, you mean that... Yes, I mean he... Prefers her company to mine. Well, that doesn't sound reasonable, if you'll pardon me for saying so. What do you want me to do? Somebody has to bring Harvey back to his senses, Mr. Rogue. Well, I'm afraid you've called on the wrong man. I'm not very good at long fatherly talks. Oh, and Mr. I... Rogue, please, I'm so alone. Hey, hey, now, wait a minute. Good grief. You mean to tell me that Harvey is neglecting you? <laughs> what you need to straighten Harvey out is a psychiatrist, not a detective. Harvey is definitely off his trolley. Please help me, Mr. Rowe. No, 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 Mrs. Burgess. I, I... He's with her right this minute. How do you know? When he left the house tonight, I followed him. He went to the home of his best friend, Clarence Roman. I parked across the street. I was going in and faced them, but I saw Mr. Roman leave, and I lost my nerve. That's when I called you. Oh, Mr. Rogue, I want you to go out there and talk to Harvey. Tell him I know all about him and that Stark girl. And I'm suing him for divorce. Well, that's not my kind of work, Mrs. Burgess. I I'm Please. sorry, but I... I don't want a divorce, Harvey. But I do want him back. Oh. And I'm sure that if you will do as I say, he'll come back. You must do it for me, Mr. Rogue. Here, oh, where is it? I have $500 here in an envelope. You did? Oh, wait a minute here. Let me see. Oh, oh, is this it? Yes, that's your fee. Hmm. For going out there with me, Mr. Rogan. Trying to bring Harvey back to his senses. You'll do it for me, won't you, Mr. Rogue? Well, I, uh... You'll do it for me, won't you, Mr. Rogue? Okay, come along. All right. Well, it seems there's nobody home. There's my husband's convertible out in front, right where he left it tonight when I followed him out here. How did the girl arrive? In her car. Oh, her car isn't here. It was right behind Harvey's. Looks like we got here too late, doesn't it? Try the door. I know Harvey's still here. All right. You're an old friend of Roman's, I suppose. Yes. Why? Uh, I just want to know before I try to open the door. You see, there are laws against that sort of thing. Hmm. Door's unlocked. Do we go in? Yes. Okay. After you. You know the house better than I do. Go ahead. All right. The living room is over here. Ah. 
Nobody home. Look, Mrs. Burgess, we better get out of here. No. I know Harvey's in this house someplace, and I'm going to find him. I can... What are you sniffing for? Wait a minute. That smell in the air. You get it? What? Oh. I don't smell anything. You don't? I smell chloroform. Chloroform? Yeah. You take a look upstairs. I'm going to shake down the first floor. That smell of chloroform can mean trouble, you know. Mr. Rogue, what do you mean? You're frightening me. Mrs. Burgess was very fetching when she was frightened. But I calmed her down a little bit. Now, this may sound fantastic, but I've got a little bell in my head that rings an alarm every time I really get around serious trouble. And it was playing a tune that sounded too much like a death march right that minute. I had to get her out of the way. She finally went upstairs, and I went to work. I took the living room first and looked behind all the couches and in all the dark corners. I was bending over, looking under a huge Italian-carved table when I thought I heard a stealthy footstep behind me. Ah! Don't move! Oh! Oh, my ears were still full of that ringing scream Mrs. Burgess had let out as I caught that sock behind the ear and drifted gently through space toward cloud number eight and my alter ego, Hugo. I was hoping he wouldn't be there, but he was. Sitting there with that silly smirk on his face with his little short legs pulled up under his chin and his funny little arms around them and his long white beard waving the cosmic breeze. Oh, shut up. <laughs> That's a fine attitude. You go prowling around a strange house and get caught at it and knocked out. Then you come up here and take it out on me. <laughs> get out of here, you ingrate. Oh, stop acting like a landlord, Yugor. What happened to me? <laughs> Are you kidding? Tell me, why did Mrs. Burgess scream? Answer me, Yugor. Do you know why she screamed? Sure. You wanted to tell me? <laughs> no. Find out for yourself. <laughs> You're a detective. Oh, someday I'm going to get rid of you, you little pest. <laughs> Why don't you get back to work? You got a date with Liza, you know. She's still waiting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, here goes. <laughs> Come on, Rogue. Please, come on. You didn't have to hit him so hard, Clarence. <coughs> oh, who hit me? I'm Clarence Roman, Rogue. I came home. I found the front door unlocked. I walked in. I saw a strange man prowling around my parlor. A woman screamed, and I hit you with my cane. Oh, well, what do you carry for a cane? A ball bat? Why did you scream, Mrs. Burgess? I found my husband. Upstairs. He's dead. Murdered. <laughs> We'll return to our story in just a moment. But now I'd like to say something to the ladies. Do you ever feel like hanging your head in shame because your hair isn't, well, looking as nice as it should? Perhaps you get discouraged because every time you shampoo your hair, it seems dry and difficult to set. Then for your next shampoo, why not try Fitch's Saponified Coconut Oil Shampoo? 
This clear golden liquid shampoo is made from mild coconut and vegetable oils. These pure natural oils keep your hair from becoming dry and brittle. When you use Fitch's saponified shampoo, you can have a shampoo as often as you like, and after each one, your hair will be soft and lustrous, easy to set into your favorite hairstyle. You'll love the glorious quantities of fragrant lather this shampoo makes. It cleanses thoroughly and then rinses out completely without a special after-rinse. You see, Fitch's saponified shampoo contains its own patented rinsing agent. All you do is rinse with plain water, and the rinsing agent contained in the shampoo ensures the removal of all particles from your hair, making it sparkle with cleanliness. Ask for Fitch's saponified coconut oil shampoo at your drug counter, barber, or beauty shop. Look for the bottle with the bright yellow label. Now back to Rogue's Gallery. Richard Rogue is telling our story. Well, I had accepted a case for Mrs. Harvey Burgess, a suspicious wife. Yes, that's the Mrs. Harvey Burgess of the Burgess Millions. She suspected her husband of having a rendezvous with Helen Stark, his secretary, at the home of Clarence Roman, Burgess's best friend, and we went out there together. Nobody answered the door, so we went in. My suspicions were aroused when I smelled the unmistakable odor of chloroform. Mrs. Burgess was looking around upstairs while I searched the downstairs. Suddenly, I heard Mrs. Burgess scream. Ah! My husband! Upstairs, he's dead! Murdered! Well, that snapped me out of it. I got to my feet and ran up the stairs. Mrs. Burgess and Roma were right behind me, and she directed me into the library, which was just off the main hall. And there he was. As dead as last summer's romance, with a neat little blue hole right below the part in his hair. He was a nice-looking old guy, about 50, which made him a good 25 years older than his wife. And his widow was really taking his death big, which was natural. A woman doesn't have a husband murdered every day. Poor Harvey, this is horrible. Has anything in this room been moved or touched? Well, I just arrived home, when I When I looked wouldn't... in here and saw Harvey, I knew he was dead. I screamed. Yes, yes, I heard you. Then you ran right downstairs, Yes, huh? I, I saw Mr. Roman hit you, and I ran down to tell him who you were. And... That's a little late. Okay. Just don't touch anything. Stay right there in the door, both of you. Just who are you to be giving us orders? You'll find out. Ever see this gun before? Yes. Where? It was Harvey's. He kept it in his desk at the office. Oh, you recognized it mighty quickly. How? It has his initials on it. I can see them from here, inset in the butt of the gun. Oh, his gun, huh? Yeah. Well, it wasn't suicide. Not with the gun clear over here on the opposite side of the room. This is murder. <laughs> hey, what's the matter? Well, this ought to do it. What is it? What's a handkerchief. A very nice linen handkerchief with initials in the corner. And blood on it. What initials? H.S. Helen Stark. That's her handkerchief. She killed Harvey. She killed my Harvey. Is there a phone upstairs here? Yes. You'll find an extension in the hall. Thanks. Come on out of this room. I don't want anything touched or moved. Now, now. Dear, please. You two wait for me downstairs. I'll be down just a minute. As soon as I call the police. 
speaking. Hello, Urban. Richard Rogue. Yeah, who's dead? Harvey Burgess, wise guy. Hmm? You mean it? You mixed up in another murder, Rogie? Sure. You'd never find a body if it wasn't for me. Where are you? At the residence of Clarence Roman on Cypress Avenue, 2120. Better get the boys and get out here. Be right there. Got any leads on the killer? Uh, a couple of vague ideas. Stay there until I get there, Rogue. Oh, uh, hello, Liza, darling. This is Rogie. Oh, you know what time it is. Oh, sure, honey, I'll but give you I... ten minutes to get back here and take me to that show. What? Oh. Uh, look, Roman. Roman, the cops will be here in a minute. Tell Urban, that's Lieutenant Urban, he'll be in charge for the police, that I'll be right back, will you? Tell him I went out to get a murderess for him. Of course. And I hope you managed to catch her, Rogue. Good evening. Is uh, Helen Stark at home? I, I I beg your pardon. I'm I'm a bit deaf. I uh, I couldn't hear you. Oh, I said, is Helen Stark at home? Oh, oh, Helen? Uh, no, no, she isn't home this evening. Has she been home? I say, has she been home in the last hour? Uh, no, no, she hasn't. I I don't know what time to expect her either. But I imagine she'll be home soon, though. You know where she is. Well, she didn't come home from the office tonight. She's she's working late. Oh, she called you and told you she wouldn't be home? Yes, yes. She said she was going to work with Mr. Burgess. That's her boss, you know, the, the millionaire. Yes, uh, well, thank you. Uh, could I, uh, could I tell her who called? No, 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 that, uh, that won't be necessary, thanks. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much, Mr. Stark. I, uh, oh, uh... You and Helen live here all alone? Yes, yes, since her mother died several years ago. Uh, are you an old friend of Helen's? No, a very recent acquaintance. Oh. I'm sorry I bothered you, Mr. Stark. Good night. Good evening. Nice out after the rain, isn't it? Yeah, sure is. Good night. Good night. Oh, that nice little old guy. It was going to be tough for him to realize that his daughter was a killer. I hated the world as I walked down the steps from that porch and started for my car. I, uh... Oh, I don't like murder. It upsets so many people who aren't involved in the act, or the reasons for it. Yeah, I guess I'm a chicken-hearted Patsy. But if I am, I'm glad. Anyway, I was walking down the walk when that little bell rang in my massive intellect again. I noticed something, something peculiar. There were tire tracks running into the stock garage. It had only stopped raining about 45 minutes before, and if that car had been driven into the garage while it was still raining, there would be no tracks. They would have been washed away. Now, very peculiar. I ran up the driveway and opened the overhead garage door. Then I jumped back. The garage was full of carbon monoxide. I wet my handkerchief in a puddle of rainwater, 
held it over my nose and ran into the garage. I wrestled the door of the small coupe open and saw a young girl, unconscious, slumped over the steering wheel. I pulled her out of there. She was dead weight and carried her into the house. Oh, Helen. Helen. I'm afraid it's a little late for that, Mr. Stark. Where's your telephone? In the hall. Right in the hall. Thanks. I'll get a pull motor squad out here right away. Fire department. Get a pull motor squad to 640 Inglewood Drive. Attempted suicide. Bad shape. Rush it. Right. Raymond, Ramsey, Redding, Roman. Roman, Clarence. Lieutenant Urban, please. This is Richard Rogue, and it's important. This is Urban speaking, Rogue. I thought I told you to stay here. Look, never mind the arguments. Get out here to 640 Inglewood Drive. I've got Helen Stark for you. You have? Nice work. I want to talk to that young lady. Well, you missed the boat. I think she's dead. Suicide. Carbon monoxide poisoning. Step on it. Okay, Rogie. I'll be there in ten minutes. Don't go away. <laughs> I gave Helen Stark my own interpretation of artificial respiration until the pull motor squad got there. Urban arrived on the heels of the fire department, and we went out and looked around in the garage. Made some fascinating discoveries, too. The car had run out of gas and stopped turning over, for one thing. And one thing led to another, to coin a phrase. Anyway, Urban and I made a little deal. I went back to the Roman residence, and while he and his boys were being scientific, I... Sat in the parlor and talked with Mrs. Burgess and Clarence Roman. Mrs. Burgess had recovered her poise to some extent. They were both very anxious to know all about my daring capture of the Stark girl. I'm glad she's dead. I couldn't stand a trial. I'm glad she committed suicide. Yes, I, I guess it seemed like the only way out. She wasn't very smart about murder, leaving clues all over the place the way she did. Even the cops would have had her in 24 hours. How well did you know the Stark girl, Roman? Rather well. I'd see her on the office a great deal. Harvey was, well, not very discreet about the fact that he was fond of her. Please, Clarence. Harvey's dead. We should forget those things. He was a good husband. I, I don't know what life is going to be like without him. I just have an idea that it's going to be pretty simple, Mrs. Burgess. And possibly rather short. What do you mean? I mean that the police suspected you and Mr. Roman murdered your husband and Miss Stark. That's a serious accusation, Rogue. Your husband was suing you for divorce, wasn't he, Mrs. Burgess? He knew you were going to be there with Mr. Roman, his best friend, tonight. So he came and surprised you with Helen Stark for a witness, didn't he? And you, Mr. Roman, you killed him and then you had to kill Helen Stark to shut her up. This is preposterous. Ah, sit down, Roman. You were right, Rogie. We found Roman's fingerprints on the steering wheel of Helen Stark's car. One of the boys just got back with a report that Roman's shoe is a perfect fit in that shoe print outside Stark's garage. I had nothing to do with it. Clarence killed Harvey, and then he chloroformed that Stark girl, and then... You're in this as far as I am. Shut up! I've got more news for you, Roman. Helen Stark isn't dead. The car ran out of gas just in time. She'll be there to appear against you when you're tried. For murder. <laughs> Thank you.
Oh, Liza, honey. I'm... I don't want to talk to you, Richard Rogue. I'm busy. Oh, now, honey. The lady says she's busy. Yeah? Who are you? The name is George. Good night, chump. <laughs> Ah, little drops of rain. The stuff we're getting so much of out here in California right now saved Helen Stark's life. Because if I hadn't noticed those tire tracks, she would have stayed in the garage until it was too late for the pole motor squad to save her. Ah, yes, sir. Little drops of rain put the curse on what was almost a perfect double murder. With the help of my massive intellect. There's only one thing I can't understand. How come a guy as smart as I am gets hit on the head so often? Answer me that, will you? This is Dick Powell again, ladies and gentlemen. How did you like our little story tonight? Ray Buffum wrote it. Leith Stevens composed and conducted the music, and Dee Engelbach produced and directed. Oh, uh, don't forget to tune in next Thursday night. We're going to present a strange story of a house where everybody was scared. We call it the House of Fear. So make a date with us, will you? Thanks for listening and good night, all. Now here's Jim Doyle. Don't forget to tune in again next Thursday, same time, same station, when you will again hear Dick Powell as Richard Rogue in Rogue's Gallery. Remember, if dandruff is your problem, ask for Fitch's Dandruff Remover Shampoo. Removes dandruff the first time it is used. Fitch's Dandruff Remover Shampoo is the only shampoo whose guarantee to remove dandruff is backed by one of the world's largest insurance companies. This statement can be made by no other shampoo. Ask for Fitch's Dandruff Remover Shampoo at your drug counter, Barber, or Beauty Shop. Fitch is spelled F-I-T-C-H. Folks, when we see a wounded veteran, we can thank him with our eyes and with a smile. We can also thank him in more material ways, like helping make sure he gets all the benefits of the G.I. Bill of Rights. That takes money. The money we lend when we buy victory bonds. Buy victory bonds.